Hey everybody, welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here, another Word Balloon unconventional today to lead us into the weekend of San Diego Comic-Con. Two great guests, I think you're going to enjoy the conversation. First up, Nikki Wheeler-Nicholson. You might recognize the last name. She is the granddaughter of Major Malcolm Wheeler-Nicholson, who was the creative founder of National Comics, which became DC Comics. And she has a great new book that talks about the prehistory of National Comics before Action Comics number one. Of course, we all know that was April 1938. We're celebrating Superman's 80th anniversary. But there were several years of National Comics that happened well before the debut of Superman. And this is the period that Nikki is covering regarding her grandfather's career and his comics. The book is called DC Comics Before Superman, Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson's Pulp Comics by the Major and, of course, Nikki. And uh, this is great. Uh, the Major was quite an adventurer in his own right as part of the Army. He was uh, also a, a foreign uh, traveler. And uh, Nikki goes into great detail about the uh, Major's personal background and personal adventures. And then in the book itself, which is coming out from Hermes Press uh, in September, you also get a great selection of the Major's own comics. He was the creative father behind Slam Bradley. Siegel and Schuster, of course, uh, created Slam as far as uh, actually writing and drawing the comic. But, uh, you know, the Major was the one who actually came up with the idea of Slam Bradley and a host of other great heroes that are depicted in this book. It's, it's fantastic. And really, if you love Golden Age comics, the Major story is pretty incredible. And there's a lot of apocryphal stories about the Major as well, as far as uh, bad business acumen and bad business practices. And uh, Nikki is here to uh, set the record straight from her grandfather. Great memories and uh, accounts of her grandfather are uh, collected in this book. And she's terrific. So I think you're really going to enjoy part one of today's Word Balloon. You're going to enjoy part two as well. It's our buddy Rob Salkowitz who's back. Rob is the author of Comic-Con and the Business of Pop Culture. We've discussed his book in the past. He also writes columns weekly for Forbes magazine and ICV2, uh, the wonderful uh, comic book news website. And uh, gives us great insight on the comic culture uh, from a business standpoint. And uh, he's on several panels this weekend at San Diego. Uh, he's also been writing lately about how museums are the new appreciation for comic book art and how really, uh, finally, comic book art is getting its due in a lot of respected museums across the country and really across the world. It's always been the case across the world, but it's nice to see that finally the United States is uh, recognizing the importance and uh, pleasure of exhibiting comic book art. Pretty neat stuff. We uh, also talk about the business of comic book conventions. You know as well that the Seamus Brothers, who used to run the Wizard World uh, conventions, have uh, come up with a new comic convention of sorts called Ace Comic Conventions. And Rob has enjoyed those firsthand and gives us a firsthand account. You know, I, I, I'm still skeptical, but he, he points out the good parts of it and the bad parts of it. I think he's pretty fair in uh, what he says about uh, what's going on in the uh, convention culture as well. So uh, really interesting stuff. And again, reflecting the kind of panels beyond the obvious that I always like to hunt down at uh, some of the major conventions. And certainly San Diego is a good example of that. And you'll hear about uh, what Nikki and uh, Rob are doing this weekend. Let's enjoy another Word Balloon Unconventional and uh, get things started with Nikki Wheeler Nicholson.
I think you're going to enjoy this conversation about DC Comics before Superman and her incredible grandfather, Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. Here's Nikki now on Word Balloon. Nikki Wheeler Nicholson, it's a pleasure. Welcome to Word Balloon. Thank you. I really appreciate your doing this. Oh, God, when I saw you at um, a San Diego panel, I want to say like two years ago, maybe three, Mm -hmm. uh, I was very excited about this project. And um, as you say, it's an untold chapter in the history of DC Comics, then National Comics, well, and even your your grandfather even predates the idea of National Comics. So this is really that untold period before Action Comics number one, very, very early years of, of comic book magazines. Yes, and what a lot of people don't realize, because um, they don't have access to the comics themselves, what they don't realize is how much um, my grandfather had to do with the look of modern comics, with the stories, the formats, um, and certainly hiring uh, many, many of the artists, the writers, the editors. And that's why I think it's really important for people to begin to see the work besides just talking about it. Agreed. And that's it is comics. (laughs) Well, yeah, you're right. And, and, you know, it's funny you say that. And here we are on an audio podcast talking about a visual medium. But uh, I, I, I do agree. And and it is great that you include uh, a lot of the stories that your grandfather wrote and um, or was the inspir, you know, the the guiding creative force and then handing off to other writers in some cases. Um, Yeah, this is I I always when uh, when I was a kid in the 70s, they had those Treasury edition reprints of a lot of the very Mm -hmm. first uh, appearances of Superman and Batman and the Justice Society and Wonder Woman. And it was it was just as interesting to me because these these comics like action and detective and sensational, uh, they were all and certainly fun, uh, new fun and more fun that your, your grandfather even had a bigger hand in. Um, they were anthologies, and it was like, well, wait a minute, who is this Dr. Occult? Who is this uh, Slam Bradley and some of these other right. features? So, yeah, it was really right. – I, I mean, it, it was. It was like, you know, you, you, you'd you get like the first chapter of what was obviously a serialized story, and that's all you saw in these reprints. So it's all like, right. oh, that's too bad. That sounds like an interesting concept. Where did it go after that? So, right, right. Well, uh, the – stories that we chose for this book were all originally pulp stories that my grandfather wrote. Yep. And um, I, one of the things I really have emphasized over and over is how important the pulps are to comics. Most people, when they think about pulps, they think of the 1950s paperback novels that have really funny, uh, wonderful covers in many instances. (laughs) But um, pulps themselves were, as you probably know, adventure stories for the most part uh, that started about sometime in the 1880s with, I think, the Argosy. Sure. And they were magazines that were all fiction, which is astounding to think about today. There was very little advertising in them, and they were incredibly popular. 
And my grandfather wrote for a lot of those magazines. And these, the comics that we chose were originally uh, pulp stories of his that became comics. And I thought that was a good way to uh, show how important the pulps are. Agreed. And also, uh, you know, we all know your grandfather as uh, Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. And um, right. I, and I love the fact that um, a lot of his adventure pulp stories were really based on his own experiences. I mean, this was a, a well-traveled, globetrotting man uh, through the military and then I'm assuming as well after the military? Uh, yes, very much so. Um, he and my grandmother uh, lived in France just before the Depression. He was making enough money writing for pulps, believe it or not, to for them to go uh, to. They had an apartment in Paris. She was my grandmother was from was Swedish, and they had an apartment in Paris, and they rented this enormous chateau wow. uh, in the Champagne district. Wow. And uh, it was just an incredible lifestyle. And of course, when the Depression hit, they had to come home and face what everybody else was facing. But for a couple of years there, it was pretty exciting. And he based some of his uh, pulp stories on that chateau. And I got to visit there uh, a few years ago with my one of my Swedish relatives, the patriarch of the Swedish side, and it was absolutely astonishing to see that chateau and realize this was one of the uh, inspirations for some of the stories that he wrote. That's excellent. And, you know, as you say, he was writing pulps in the late 20s before the stock market crash that led to the Depression and... Um, you know, this was the height of the pulps and, um, man, uh, you know, uh, short stories and novels for these magazines right. as you describe, which is pretty amazing. His army career is is pretty cool, too, and I'm really glad that you covered that. And and really the, the shame of uh, his kind of being railroaded out of the service. Yes. Uh, um, people who have repeated the stories about him have not really done their research. And um, it was used as one of the, the ways to put him down later, to uh, denigrate him in a lot of ways by saying that he was cashiered out of the army. But in the book, I talk about uh, some of what happened. I don't go into full detail, which I um, will do in a full biography. But um, it was based on a racial incident because he was in charge of a troop of African American Buffalo soldiers, and uh, they were in they were stationed in the Philippines, and his superior officer was very prejudiced. This was nineteen uh, fourteen wow. fifteen, yeah. And so you can imagine. Sure. <laughs> and um, the, so his superior officer treated his troops really badly and was constantly throwing them in the, the guardhouse, constantly uh, uh, harassing them, really. And he just got fed up with it and decided that he would show 
his superior officer uh, how good these men could be. And he challenged the superior officer to a contest between his men and the colonel's men. And it was for machine gun readiness. Now, in 1915, back in the day, what that meant was that these guys on horseback would have to be able to jump off their horses and put together a machine gun in a matter of moments in order to be battle ready. Wow. So, yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah. And so he trained these guys and trained these guys, and they had a contest in front of the big brass who came out, the generals with all their uh, medals, and and uh, his men just beat the pants off of the colonel's men. And that did not sit well, <laughs> and things escalated from there. Wow. So, yeah, I'll let I'll let people read the book. Uh, you're, you know, and also really yeah. to hear because I know you were planning to do this full biography of the major, and uh, I wasn't sure if this Hermes Press release was, you know, kind of a not compromise, but you know that that the 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 thought of doing the full biography morphed into this project. But I'm glad they're they're two separate projects, and glad that you're also going to have the full, de- you know, even more details in your upcoming uh, book about the major. Yes. I'm not sure uh, if I'll do just a straight biography now because I really enjoyed doing uh, this book because it it tells the major story through his creative work, which has always been the way in for me. And there's a lot more detail about his life and the amazing things he did and so much more about the pulps and the comics. So I'm rethinking how I might do that now. Uh, but I'm definitely going to do at least one more book, if not more. Terrific. Will you consider doing uh, a collection of his pulp stories? Are they public domain now? Are they under copyright? So that's kind of not possible? Um Surprisingly, uh, the whole this is interesting because it also has to do with Siegel and Schuster. Um, in the pulps, the tradition was that most authors signed uh, a contract or wrote on the back of a check that they would the rights to the author would revert back to them after first North American serial publication. And so my grandfather's stories all reverted back to him. Wow. However, there are people who own the copyright for the entire magazine. So out of courtesy to them, I usually ask for permission. But the stories all did revert back to him. And I have published a a book through a small press of some of his pulp stories. It's called The Texas um, Siberia Trail, and it's published by a small publisher, John Locke of Off Trail Publications. And he did a beautiful job, Uh, really, really nice job. He's a superb pulpster and a really good researcher. And he was the first publisher who really um, helped me. And uh, so that, that book is actually available. 
Oh, that's excellent. I know the one publisher, and they publish the Shadow Pulps, among other pulp uh, magazines, Street and Smith, has morphed into... Right. I don't even... And you might know what the modern name of the company is, but I come from a sports uh, radio background, and uh, it's certainly uh, from the 60s through the 90s, Street and Smith was a very uh, big sports publisher uh, doing season-long previews and, and postseason. Uh, looks at all the major leagues. I mean, you know, basketball, baseball, football, uh, hockey. And um, they at one point um, bought uh, this radio network that I worked for, Sporting News Radio, that was uh, affiliated with the Sporting News Magazine. And uh, I like that. Oh, really? Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, it was crazy. And again, being a comic book and pulp fan, um, I was like, at first, I was like, oh, that's really cool. I'll be working for Street and Smith, the former Street and Smith. And then, unfortunately, they fired everybody and, and basically oh, rebuilt, the, uh, yeah, rebuilt the radio network in, uh, in Los Angeles. So that's okay. I, you know, I, I rebounded fine. And it's, it, it makes for a nice story to tell uh, my, my friends who are pulp fans and, and comic book fans. But, uh, yeah, so um, it is – yeah, and I'm not surprised to hear – that a lot of this stuff still, you know, these companies do exist under different conglomerates and that, yeah, they held on to certain copyrights and everything. So, yeah, that is that is an interesting footnote. And I want to get into Siegel and Schuster. But first, you know, so what what do you believe led your grandfather to think these are great adventure stories? They would work as comics as well as pulp stories. That's a hard question to answer without him having said it himself. Sure. So I I can only make an educated guess. Um, he my, he comes from uh, my family has always been in publishing. Uh, his grandfather, my great grandfather, right after the Civil War, uh, began a newspaper in Jonesboro. Uh, Tennessee, in the uh, eastern Tennessee after okay. the Civil War, and his mother, um, that was my great-great-grandfather, and his mother, my great-grandmother, was a journalist at the turn of the last century, Wow, which is highly unusual. Absolutely. She was a... She was a suffragette, which is why we have that hyphenated last name. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I've always joked about it, and I just thought it was because my family was pretentious. (laughs) But (laughs) it turns out David Saunders, whom I don't know if you know David, but his dad, Norman, was a wonderful artist uh, of the pulp. Yes. And David is an incredible uh, pulp historian, particularly with the artist. And one day David said to me, well, don't you know the reason for that is because your grandmother was a suffragette? And I thought, oh, all right. That's cool. So it was the idea back in the day that you kept your father's name and then you just hyphenated your husband's name. So that's why we have that weird last name. That's excellent. Oh, that's Um, great. Yeah. So, you know, he came out of this background of people who were journalists and writers and publishers, and he himself was an artist. He loved to draw, and some of his early drawings were in the uh, yearbook from his military academy days. And I just think that 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 
was something that always appealed to him, that idea of the graphic representation. Um, and because he was traveling in Europe a lot, he saw all kinds of um, pre-comic book uh, things like, uh, I don't know if you know Dr. John Lent, who's at Temple University in Philadelphia, but Dr. Lent has the International Journal of Comic Art, and we've talked at length about what um, my grandfather might have seen in Japan and Siberia and China uh, around World War One, because those early uh, um, Japanese... I, I can't call them comics, but they were pictorial representations, and Dr. Linton, I think he saw those. Interesting. Um, and I think, you know, it's just something about that combination of the written word and um, uh, pictures just appealed to him. You know, he'd had a syndicate back in the 20s, in 1927, 25, 26, 27 in New York, and he was publishing representations of um, very well-known novels like Three Musketeers and Ivanhoe and some Edgar Allan Poe stories. So he was putting those in comic strip form for newspapers as early as the 20s, mid to late 20s. So clearly that idea was there from the very beginning. And I guess when they got back from Europe in 1930, uh, and he just had such a hard time with uh, struggling to make a living then, and why on earth he decided to start a comic book company in 1933-34 at the height of the Depression? I don't know, but I'm glad he did. Well, yeah, and it was, I guess, in the zeitgeist because you had people like, as as Jim Steranko points out in your foreword of your book, uh, Max Gaines, uh, who uh, was William Gaines, Mad Magazine's father and uh, in charge, right. ultimately, of All-American Comics, which ultimately merged with National Comics. Uh, but, you know, he was coming out with famous... Uh, was it Fabulous Funnies? Yes, I believe. Famous. Famous Funnies, thank famous. you. Yeah, and this, you know, so... And at first, the early comic books were reprints of newspaper strips. And then... Right. And then some entrepreneurial publishers, including your grandfather, instead are like, let's do original content. Instead, and uh, you know, obviously, and then and then the the that's when the start of the the golden age of comics really begins. And it's important to note this is a good you know three to four years before Action Comics number one and and Superman. Right, exactly, exactly. I, I'm pretty sure, other than um, a few people, Tom Andre and I always uh, talk about this. Uh, that my grandfather's really the person who began that. There were people who did, I think, had maybe one comic or something come out, but his his uh, company, National Periodicals, really, it, it's, it's, there's a total continuity there. So from 1934, when he began putting this together, until today, there's never, there's been total continuity. 
Um, so that's pretty unusual. Um, and also the guys like Max Gaines and um, people like Marvin Goodman and the Silver Clays and these guys were all salesmen in the pulps. And my grandfather was the one person who came out of the pulps to get into comics who was a creative person, sure, a writer. Yes. So that was a big difference there. Well, and because of that was, um, as you point out in your book, um, is symp- I don't know if sympathetic is the right word or just understanding as a, as a creator himself. And it's it's funny that it took the efforts of people like Neil Adams and, and others in the 70s to do what your grandfather was doing back in the 30s, as you stated in terms of his pulp stories, that, you know, uh, they would they would share revenue with the creators, or at least he proposed that. I know you talk about how right. uh, that was the case with his early encounters with, with uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Yeah, and, and that's not just something I made up. Those are in letters that he wrote to Jerry Siegel about um, how the rights belong to them and um, sharing of revenue, all that kind of thing was highly unusual for what happened afterwards, but not unusual in terms of my grandfather, who was an old-fashioned person in a lot of ways, doing something completely unusual. And he was doing it in an old-fashioned way with the handshake and my word is good kind of thing. And in fact, one of my favorite stories about uh, Shelley Mayer was that he complained at one point about my grandfather's contracts, which he said were something like, if I make any money, you make money. If I don't make any money, you don't make any money. <laughs> and what I think is funny about that is that actually that's a hell of a lot better than what happened. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and again, this is being done in the early 30s in the throes of the Depression. And right, yeah, exactly. I mean, and your and your grandfather's really, you know, well, and that's I, I'm assuming why he had to go to uh, people like uh, Harry Donenfeld and uh, Jack Leibowitz to facilitate yeah. the the publication of yeah. the books. So yeah, you know, talk a little right. bit about Donenfeld and Leibowitz. Uh, they're they're names that are very uh, famous, and in some cases, you, it's fair to say infamous as being part of. Uh, national and and what became DC and and my God uh, Leibowitz, uh, right was with the company through I mean he was in his nineties and still with the company right or eighties oh yeah yeah I think he pretty much ran the the roost as they say uh, for a very long time um, I, I don't want to make them into villains because that's kind of cartoonish. Sure. Um, we're talking about comics, but uh, because they were real people. And I'm, I've always been fascinated by Don and Phil. Uh, I've been fascinated by him from day one. I know his grandson, who's also named Terry, who is quite fabulous. What does he do now? And I keep... Uh, he's an incredible photographer. Interesting. He lives in Hawaii, and if you Google him, oh my gosh, his photography is just stunning. 
And he happens to be, Laura Siegel and I met him for the first time, I think it was two years ago, and we both just fell in love with him. We just think he is fabulous. And I could see that um, that DNA of, of his grandfather, who must have been an incredibly charming person and really fun, and it, it, it just... It, it made it uh, much more human to me and not so much thinking of him as a villain. And the other thing we have to recognize is that it was business. They saw a good opportunity. They saw that they were not going to be able to control my grandfather. And so they thought, okay, we'll see what we can do about that. And although it wasn't fair and it wasn't nice, um, this is what happened. And my grandfather would not want to be painted as a victim in any way whatsoever. Um, so I do want to say that. The thing about um, Donneville and Leibowitz both that I think is important to understand is that they both came out of um, the uh, Lower East Side. I lived on the Lower East Side um, years ago okay. in in New York City. And uh, it's quite an interesting part of the city. It was originally landfill. So it, it, it had been kind of swampy. <laughs> and um, so this is where the, you know, the new immigrants were dumped sure. in this very unattractive, you know, landfill area. And it's hard to imagine, but it was it was crowded, really awful uh, tenements, you know, people who were fleeing um, terrible situations in uh, Europe, and they were all jammed into this small space. And um, Harry had to go to work at uh, when he was 15 years old. And for him to have come out of that background and achieve what he achieved, I think that's a really great story. And I'm hoping that his grandson, Harry, uh, will uh, follow through with that. He's been talking about it, and uh, we've been encouraging him because it's a great story that needs to be told. Having said that, uh, he was involved with bootleggers and gangsters and, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, it's it's just interesting how all of that sort of came together. Uh, Leibowitz, on the other hand, uh, went to, was able to go to college. And he must have been an incredibly intelligent person because you can tell from the way he put together the company and the way he strategized that he he had uh, really, really phenomenal intelligence and ability to strategize and see the larger picture of things. He was pretty cold uh, from all the stories that have been told. He wasn't a very warm and fuzzy person. And neither he nor Harry saw uh, the artists and the writers, the creators, the same way that my grandfather did. They just didn't. And uh, so that was part of some of the conflict that occurred and has occurred throughout the history of D.C. And I think, you know, one of the things that has been 
missing from the D.C. history and story is my grandfather's story, because without him, that creative impulse um, would really never have happened. I mean, I can't imagine that Donenfeld and Leibowitz would have been able to come up with the kind of creativity and to hire the people and recognize the artists that my grandfather did. He basically laid the groundwork for them, for everything that came after. And that's what I think is important. Agreed. And I I know that prior to getting in business with your grandfather, these guys were making magazines, but they were kind of like the penthouse forums of their day. They were kind of these, like, smut. I mean, not smut. I guess that's too much. But they were kind of racy. They, you tell me, Nikki. Okay, you yeah. probably did more research. Well, well, I've they, never seen they, them. Uh, you, oh, they're, they're really, the covers are quite something. Uh, most of them were called things like spicy detective. Yep. Uh, you know, that kind of thing with the spicy in front of it. And then the covers would be these incredible covers with these scantily clad women being carried off by, you know, who knows what, space aliens, you know, uh, just ridiculous. Are they reminiscent, uh, are they reminiscent of like, because um, I'm a big fan of and, and really appreciate the art of a lot of the men's adventure magazines of the 40s, yes, 50s, and 60s. exactly. Okay, so it was like exactly. that kind of stuff. Okay, yeah, which is, again, right. pretty, or even as you were saying about the paperbacks of the 50s, a lot of these racy covers right. of scantily clad women exactly. about to be menaced by gangsters or aliens or mad scientists and the like. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But some incredible artists Absolutely. Uh, worked for Don and Phil. Uh, Norman Sanders was one of them. Wow. Uh, if people don't know his work, they should look it up. Oh, God, yes. I have a lot of... Really. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> really, really wonderful artist. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why people get confused about the pulp, because they assume that that was it. But there were hundreds of other magazine titles that were all PG and aimed for a general audience. Um, So, yeah, they they were uh, publishing these magazines. And what happened specifically is that uh, Harry uh, was really pushing the envelope there at the end of um, uh, uh, Prohibition. What the reason prohibition ended is that all the people who were teetotalers realized with the incredible violence that just kept escalating because of prohibition and the gangsters running the speakeasies and the the liquor and all of that just created this whole alternative business model, which ended up in a lot of violence for a lot of people, coupled with the depression, lack of money, and all those kinds of things um, generated this atmosphere. And um, so Donenfeld was publishing these these spicy uh, publications, and uh, when Prohibition ended, one of the things that happened is that there was a crackdown on uh, all kinds of things. And one of the things there was a crackdown on was these uh, magazines. And uh, so 
he and uh, Leibowitz were looking for something else that would keep them out of trouble. In fact, uh, you know, there's the famous story about uh, the guy, I can't remember his name now, Herbie, I think his name was Herbie Siegel, yeah, who took the rap for Donenfeld uh, because of a, a spicy cover that um, basically is a naked woman <laughs> with everything showing. <laughs> uh, and uh, so Herbie Siegel took the rap and I think spent some time in, in jail and uh, was seen at D.C. for years after that doing nothing. <laughs> Uh, wow, but earning anyway, a check, I guess, for his trouble. Yeah, exactly. So that was the big deal there, is that Leibowitz really wanted to get them out of this and into something that was uh, PC, and uh, they were printing my grandfather's comics, and he needed money, and there you go. Wow. <laughs> I love it was not a match made in heaven. Jeez. Well, I and as you say, you know, your your grandfather's this creative force behind uh what National would end up, you know, doing their early comics and a lot of familiar names, not only Siegel and Schuster, yeah. but uh, like you mentioned Shelley Mayer, Sheldon Mayer and uh Whitney Ellsworth who you know, I knew best as I'm sure and and you explained it in the book as well and listeners might recognize if they're paying attention to the credits on the George Reeves uh, Superman, Adventures of Superman television series. Uh, he was the liaison right. be between DC Comics and really the de facto producer of uh, of the Superman right. TV show. So, And it, and it really right. surprised me to learn 20 years earlier, he's working in National, at, and, it, and it should, it makes sense, but I assumed he was just a TV guy, having didn't really knowing about his history uh, in the comics with DC. Oh, yeah. So my grandfather's, those early, that whole early group of people were really the foundation for, that's why I said, for basically everything that came after, including uh, Bob Kane, who only worked for my grandfather a short period of time, but um, evidently he made fun of my grandfather in a comic um, then I said, oh, he called it the Little Major. I think that was it. Wow. And, uh, uh, you know, people have mentioned this before, but I got to tell you, my grandfather would have thought that was funny. Oh, that's... <laughs> he could have... He could have cared less. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> he would have been highly amused by it <laughs> and consider it somewhat flattering. And you have to remember that the thing about all of these guys that my friend David Armstrong, who, by the way, is the hero of the hour here, uh, David is, um, I've been calling him the curator, um, because, I, I mean, I don't know what else you would say for the person who uh, procured over 170 rare, scarce comics pages for this book. Um, so he... He did a phenomenal job, um, David Armstrong, and he'll be he'll be at San Diego with me uh, when we're yeah. Um, anyway, so David has some great stories about uh, interviews he did with the guys like Craig Flysall and Ben Sullivan and Fred Gardner and many of these early uh, guys. 
And and what you have to remember is that these guys were really young when they were working for my grandfather. He was 40-ish. And they, I think Shelley Mayer was 18 when he was working for my wow. grandfather. Wow. So, so you have to imagine that as an 18-year-old, how you might view someone in their 40s. Sure. And uh, it, it's, it's important to remember that when people repeat some of these stories from the past that these guys told is that they were really young then. Understood. Well, and I and again, yeah, these were, you know, uh, how do you say Craig's name? Craig Faisal? Uh-huh. Yeah, he was, as you say, one of those very early uh, DC artists and uh, was doing cover work for, uh, you know, your grandfather's stories. And um, and, and truly, yeah, the, the, the comics that are in this book are, are fantastic. And it really is great to get a chance to really read. As I said, I mean, you know, what what I only saw of maybe four or eight pages of a, of a chapter of a story in, you know, Detective Comics 27 or Action Comics number one reprinted, you know, you've got several issues and you really get a sense of, uh, of if in, in, some, in some cases, complete stories and in some cases, as much as, as David, I guess, was able to uncover, but also to have the opportunity to interview these people. Um, I hope that he says in the afterword, Right, that he would like to do a a film documentary. I'm I'm hoping that we'll see this footage because you know the only thing we've got close to that was um, that public television uh, comic book documentary. And thank God they had a chance right. to talk to Joe Kubert and Jerry Robinson and right. uh, and right. uh, Joe uh, Joe Simon before they passed away. And so you got these guys who were all in their 80s and 90s and stuff and, and able to speak before they passed. So it's great that he's got, you know, some some footage of these guys that even predate, you know, the Simons and the Cuberts and that. And, yeah. and just like uh, what you're describing, too, those guys were in their teen years when they entered the comic yeah. book business. It is really interesting how right. young all these guys were. Yeah, and you know Ramona Fragon. Yes, uh, love her. Sort, sort of gave a, a lecture, David, the last time we saw her about you know getting that done because it, it it's really important. I mean, he's got some phenomenal, phenomenal footage of of these guys from the early days, and we've been working uh, towards a documentary. And hoping that the more this kind of information gets out, that there'll be more interest in it. So, well, I hope, yeah, I hope you guys maybe even crowdfund. And and I would think that. Uh, well, you tell me. I, I don't know yet. We're we're still we're still working on it. And uh, one of the things we wanted to see is uh, what happens with this book and how sure. people respond to it. And, uh, David also worked on a doc on Lily Renee that's going to be at San Diego this year. Uh, you know, she was a very well-known uh, uh, artist who uh, drew uh, uh, during the early days, and she's still alive. She's in her 90s. And so uh, he just executive produced a doc on her that's going to be shown oh, terrific. Uh, at San Diego oh, this know, year. Of course, this is the year so, I'm not going to yeah. be there and would love to see something like that. Honestly, Nikki, these are uh, – and one of the reasons I'm happy to talk to you is, I've, like I said, I've seen your past panels that you've been part of. Um, and I really do – that is the great, I think, hidden secret of San Diego Comic-Con in that um, – 
you know, hey, everybody loves hearing about the new TV shows and films. It's exciting to see movie stars and television stars. And certainly that's kind of become the front page story of Comic-Con. But as you know, and and as old timers like me know, uh, the comic history has not been forgotten at San Diego. And there are always incredible screenings and panels, both academic and also just another, you know, go to another panel room. And you're just learning about the history of comics from uh, creators who are still around, but also these wonderful researchers, documentarians and authors like yourself that are telling the real story. Because as you say, and one of the reasons why I know you want to get your grandfather's story out there, um, you know, hearsay and, and, and you know, just... Uh, half truths have kind of clouded the real story, and it, right. and it really is that. Right. I mean, we're so we're so uh, as as evidenced by this podcast itself and video. I mean, it's very, like everything that's happening daily is being covered quite well nowadays. But but I do think right. that, in, as you know, that pre nineties period of the twentieth century, there's some holes, there's some gaps. Right. And, and it's great to get right. as much real information out there. And that's why I, I'm glad right. that you're doing what you're doing and, and David's doing what he's doing. Yeah, you know, it's so crazy. I never in a million years thought I would be doing anything like this. Um, but I, I've become one of those obsessive people, and I just absolutely love it. Um, it's just one of the most rewarding things uh, I can possibly think of to uh, work with some of the terrific people. And I love the older artists and uh, um, Trina Robbins and I are going to be doing a panel on Wonder Woman at San Diego this year. Uh, We both, we both wrote articles for uh, John Lance international journal of uh, comic art uh, recently on each of us on wonder uh different aspects of wonder woman my background i have a master's degree in classical greek mythology from a feminine standpoint oh wow <laughs> so uh i i love wonder woman sure well you're talking to a greek guy uh, so i appreciate the history go on uh, yeah so um, my my take on Wonder Woman is about the the uh, the Greek mythology aspect of it, which I just love. Um, so yeah, um, it's I think you're right about Comic Con. It's so funny to me. A lot of people complain about it, but my friend Kim Munson, who's a wonderful art historian, said uh, there are many Comic Cons that go on in the midst of Comic-Con. And one of them is, is, as you said, the wonderful panels and films that are shown and just the fact that uh, those of us who are scattered across the country got a chance to get together uh, and just talk and exchange ideas and come up with things. And uh, it's really just a... Um, it's exhausting, but I always look forward to it, and I come back completely energized and excited and with lots of new ideas for the future. So Agreed. I'm looking forward to it as usual. Yeah, I, I really, I'm kicking myself. I've gone the last nine years, and you know, it's it, I always call it ex- expensive summer camp. 
because it really is like, yeah. hey, we're here and all my friends from out of town are here and we're all hanging out for five days. And like you say, it is. It's, right. it's these one of a kind panels. And you're right. I mean, and I and I yell back at the people who say, oh, Comic-Con isn't really Comic-Con anymore. It's about the movies. It's about the TV shows. And like you said, and like uh, your friend said, no, there's a million subcategories going on. And it's what you want to make of it. If you want to spend the whole day in Hall H and and sit with 5,000 people and see all the movie stars, sure, you can do that. Or you can go to these really amazing panels that, you know, there might be only be 50 people in the room, but it's going to be a really intense discussion about comic book history. And you guys all uncover uh, these incredible stories that have kind of slipped through the cracks. And it's uh, And I love going to the academic panels. Where you know the very yeah. you know the various uh, other PhDs are kind of talking about you know uh, a World War II uh, comic book that was written in Japan or post-war I suppose uh, to kind of a propaganda comic to kind of normalize you know Japanese and American relations and and also you know Will all of Will Eisner's stuff I mean you know the 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 post spirit stuff that he did for PS magazine and things like that and the various uses that comic books had. But, you know, yeah, no, it's, right. it's great. Right. But I want to get back to your book because, um, you know, I, I love the creation. Uh, your your grandfather was kind of the creative godfather behind Slam ba- Bradley. Am I correct? Uh, right. It was Slam Bradley was his idea. That's awesome. Um, he re- Yeah, he came up with the idea and he wrote a letter to Jerry Siegel and uh, suggested Slam Bradley as a character, and he described the character and what he should look like and what he should wear and what kind of stories that he should um, have. And um, if, if some of the, the early uh, drawings that Joe Schuster did of Slam Bradley look exactly like Superman yep. and Clark Kent. Sure do. Um, and uh, so, you know, these ideas that my grandfather gave Siegel and Schuster, uh, of course, Jerry Siegel just you know, took off with it. Sure. And uh, one of the things I mentioned in the book is that Jerry created um, the sidekick, which uh, to me is classic Jerry Siegel, you know, the funny guy. Um, Tom Andre and my friend Mel Gordon, who passed away this uh, year, wrote a book about Funny Man. Uh, yes, go on about Funny Man. Siegel and, yeah, the Siegel and Schuster character that they developed. And um, the sidekick for Slam Bradley has a very similar quality to uh, what they developed in Funny Man. So it's it's you can tell what my grandfather's idea was and what was absolutely Jerry Siegel all the way. So that's kind of cool too. Absolutely. Did you ever uh, read um Darwin Cook's uh Slam Bradley stories that he and and Oh he, my god. Oh, glad, go on, please. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. I saw those in a French translation <laughs> years ago on the internet. And I am sorry to say I didn't know who the hell Darwin Cook was. Can you believe that? Yeah, I'm well, so you know. sorry. <laughs> and I saw this, and I thought, who is this guy? I love this. I love this. 
And finally, um, last year, J.L. Mast, I, I guess that's the way you pronounce his name, is a French uh, cartoonist, wonderful guy, okay. young guy. Um, he and I became friends, and I, I uh, emailed him, and I said, uh, do you know what this is? This is so cool. Is this a French guy? <laughs> <laughs> These guys are so kind to me about my lack of knowledge uh, of anything past 1938. And uh, he said, uh, Nikki, this is Darwin Cook. And I looked him up and I just went crazy. And I was sick that I never knew him before he passed away. I mean, it just broke my heart. I mean, what a brilliant artist. And I absolutely love what he did with Slam Bradley. Another, so, another yeah. yeah, another guy too that wrote a lot of those Catwoman comics, Ed Brubaker, as well. Uh, I think both of them really. I, I uh, Doctor Occult, another early uh, pre-action comics uh, creation, I believe, or or was in action. I forget. Yes. You'll you'll yes. you'll clarify. But when whenever they show up in modern DC universe stories, I really get excited because I know, as you say, uh, a lot of these creations that were godfathered by your grandfather. Uh, they were the you know the adventure heroes of the pre Superman era and also the very early Superman era, and it, it's great these plain clothes adventurers that you know became as important or were important then, and I'm really glad were rediscovered by these modern uh, creators. Ed is a wonderful, as you might already know, a great pulpy inspired writer. And and really, when you put Slam in his hands, he knows what he's doing with them. And yeah, I just it's great because he he's got that kind of role in the DC universe as well as being an older states an elder statesman adventurer uh, that that can right. still handle himself even though these these younger superheroes are around. And I and I love that. Yeah, it's no, I, I'm a huge Slam Bradley fan and and also a huge Doctor Occult fan as well. Yeah, yeah, really terrific. That's really excellent. terrific. Yeah, I hope you get a chance to meet Ed sometime. I don't know if you've had a chance to contact Ed Brubaker. No, I haven't, but I would really love to. Um, if he's going to be uh, in San Diego, I'll see if I can uh, track him down. Yeah, I, you know, he's he's doing a lot of TV writing these days and also um, doesn't work for DC or Marvel anymore. He does his own books through Image. Um and I wish I had uh, more current uh, contact information. I have trouble. He's, he hasn't been on the show for a couple of years. And I know he's really busy with his television work. But he does still show up for signing for signings at the Image booth at San Diego and might even do the occasional panels and stuff. So uh, if I were there, okay. I would certainly well, try and put you in touch with him. Because, yeah, I think, I think well, you know. I'll definitely look him up. And by the way, Danny Fingeroth and I are going to be uh, at New York Comic Con in October. Oh, great! Uh, we're sh- yeah, we're sharing a table in Artist Alley. So Danny and I have our own little vaudeville act that we do. <laughs> <laughs> Danny's been on the show, and I'm a big fan of his writing yeah. as well. So no, that's great. And I'm yeah. I'm eighty percent certain I'll be in New York. But go on. Yeah, well, that'd be great. Um, so we'll we'll check in before then for sure. Absolutely. No, I um, uh, again, yeah. This this is really a great book, and I and I don't want to take take up too much of your time. Um, and I want people to read the book as well. Obviously, it's uh, it's from uh, Hermes Press. And here I'm going to bring up on my right. on my Kindle the proper uh, the proper title. Let me scroll back. Here we go. So it's called DC Comics Before Superman: Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson's Pulp Comics. 
And uh, right. yeah, it's no great book, and I and I love the collection. It has great uh, you could call them pre golden age stories of of the comics world because technically, you know, a lot of people say uh, the golden age begins with Action Comics number one, and also uh, you tell. Um, the major side of the formation of action, which again, uh, his role had been diminished, I think, through the years. And I'm glad that he's got you as an advocate to say, wait a minute, uh, you know, the major really had a big hand in action comics. What? In fact, and I want to say this, um, you know, he was even interested in the Superman uh, idea a few years before action comics, correct? Right, exactly. He was the, I think he was one of the first publishers to see uh, that drawing of Superman. Um, and he was the champion of, of Superman from day one. Uh, Jerry didn't feel like, Jerry was not comfortable with uh, my grandfather's ability to uh, get it out there because of the finances, and I can understand that. Laura Siegel and I have talked about this a lot, but um, my grandfather really believed in this character and and encouraged it and encouraged them to move forward with it. So, yeah. That's really cool. No, there's there's a lot of great information here for people that are curious. It's, it's almost like all the people that turned down Superman, it's kind of like that classic story about the Beatles and Decca Records. And and the the executive right. at Decca Records telling the Beatles manager Brian Epstein, oh you know guitars are on their way out, we're not interested. And you know I know right. I know Will Eisner was one of the uh, creatives that passed on uh, Siegel and Schuster. I think they went to him as well, trying to uh, get right. something going with Superman. So no, it is it is really interesting. And as you say, the apocryphal story is that action or the this the idea for uh, Superman. Uh, came off uh, Shelley Mayer or Vin Vin Sullivan kind of looking through the slush pile and 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 f- kind of stumbling on it and saying oh what's this right. uh, let's try this and of course that's not the trick right. that's not the case no not at all and uh, Laura Siegel herself uh, put the end to that story as far as I'm concerned uh, because Laura is not just uh, the daughter of Jerry and Joanne she knows her comics. And uh, she certainly knows her father's history. Uh, her office is scary. <laughs> oh, I bet. That's cool. Really scary. <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, and again, Siegel, not only in the creation of Superman, but even when he had to come back in the 50s as a writer. with And, and, and again, you mentioned Funny Men, the failure, unfortunately. That was a creation, if listeners don't know of uh, Siegel and Schuster's after Superman. And they tried really hard right. to kind of strike out on their own with funny man. And unfortunately it obviously just didn't, you know, take off with the public. Um, but, right. but um, when he came back to DC in the fifties, he wrote so many classic Superman stories, uh, despite having right. to kind of eat crow in coming back. Right. And, and that's the great right. thing. I mean, he really did love and understand this character in such a profound way. Well, and again, he's, he's the co-creator. Of course he did. And, and also, right. Uh, right. you know, uh, thankfully, you know, and, and, and never as much money as they deserved in their, while they were still alive. But thankfully through Neil Adams and other outspoken advocates, you know, they, they got their pension around the time of the Superman movie. And, uh, you know, that's right. a story in itself, obviously. 
Um, but is is she right. is you know is she? I know that you know they, and I don't I don't mean to ask you to speak for Laura, but would you say that Laura is, for lack of a better word, content with the way things? I mean, they I know they went back to court with you know the powers that be at Warner Brothers about. Uh, yeah, and if you're not if you're I, not comfortable, I, 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 you know. I really wouldn't want to comment for Laura. Laura can very well speak for herself. She's had she had quite a great career herself as a newswoman, a journalist, uh, as an actress early on. Oh, wow. She's a fabulous person, and um, uh, she and her sons uh, have been working on a documentary, and so they're going to come out with their uh, take on it, and that's going to be really great. When that happens, oh, that's terrific! So, you know, when uh, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, if you could, I'd love to get in touch with her, and when she's ready to, if you know, and her sons, if they're when they're when they're ready, either with their project or, or willing to come on the record, I'd love to hear, you know, their point of view on, sure, on the whole thing. Sure, I'm sure they'd be happy to do it. Um, her her sons are just they're quite wonderful. They're both film students, and uh, well, they're not students. They're they're you know they're young men, I'm but they they both studied film, and um, so I, I think this is going to be a terrific documentary, and they're working very hard on it. So that's good. Excellent. Well, back to the book. Now you're going to be at San Diego, and you've you've kind of mentioned if you if it's okay. I know they're starting to release the schedules of, of the Comic-Con panels. And my thought was, and I'll tell you this both on and off the record, if uh, I wanted to release this around the time of Comic-Con, but if you want it out sooner, I'm happy to do that as well. Our conversation. Uh, um, But yeah, my thought Uh, was to put it out like, I think uh, a couple days before Comic-Con would be great. Okay, great. So yeah, Um, let let people know. Cause I, I kind of see this almost as, uh, something they could listen to as people are heading to San Diego for Comic Con, and I wanted to point out I've, I've got a couple other interviews that I'm going to release uh, a couple days before Comic Con to say, hey, if you're going there, come see these panels, come see these people. So yeah, if you don't mind spelling out your 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 uh, schedule as far as your panels at Comic Con. Um. Yeah. The the um uh, panel on the book is Friday at 4 p.m. And I don't remember the room. Oh, yeah, don't sweat the room. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, they'll look it up. That's okay. Um, um, but it's it's Friday at 4 p.m. And um, Michael Eason, the uh, executive producer of the Batman movies, yes. he's going to be on it. Because, uh, you know, Michael is a huge uh, comic book historian Absolutely. and fan. And uh, Trina Robbins is going to be on it. She'll talk about some of the women artists um, from that period and um, me, of course, and David Armstrong. And it'll be moderated by Dan Herman, the publisher. And Dan usually does a really nice job with uh, visuals for his panel. So there should be some nice visuals as well for people. And uh, hopefully... Uh, people will come and enjoy it, and we'll have some great conversations like we always do. Excellent. That's your only panel then for Comic-Con? Uh, no, I'm doing a panel uh, on Wonder Woman also on Friday at 1 o'clock. Uh, Trina and Robbins and I will be talking uh, about various aspects of Wonder Woman. And then I'll be signing at the Hermes booth uh, Thursday, 
I mean, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Cool. And um, uh, there are special, uh, there's an exclusive for Comic-Con of the book with added material, and um, some of them are signed by Jim Steranko, who did the foreword. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, Steranko is uh, a great pal, (laughs) a really good friend. And uh, I just, I love him to pieces, and I was really, really happy that he did the foreword. He was absolutely the right person to do well, it. A, so. a comic creator and comic historian in, in his own right, absolutely. And no, Jim, I, I know Jim on an acquaintance level, and uh, he may not remember me initially, but then when I remind him, oh yeah, he's, he, of course, I love, Brian Bendis calls him the Orson Welles of comics. And I think that's a really, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I kind of agree with yeah. him. You know, small body of work. I, I sort of, but I sort of like to think of him as James Bond. Myself. Oh, sure. Well, definitely. And he would. I'm sure he would appreciate the comparison. Absolutely. No, he is Nick Fury. There's no question about that. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. and 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 a great performer, both uh, in his panels yeah. and God, his Twitter feed is ridiculously entertaining as well. And he's, I know. you know, his incredible, colorful life. No, he's. I, I I love Jim. I think he's amazing, and yeah, I I absolutely drink the Kool Aid when it comes to Jim Steranko. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm with you. Me too. Absolutely. I'm there. Well, that's great. And as you, and so is the book coming out this month, or is it coming out in the fall, or later this it's summer? It's coming out in the fall. Um, it. I think. I will have copies sometime in August, but I think they're saying the official date is September. Okay. But um, I'm not, so that's that's the scoop there. So the special edition for Comic Con, and then generally available in September. Outstanding. And Hermes Press again, the publisher. And uh, no, I agree. Uh, he uh, and I, I'm sorry. It, 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 his name again, the publisher. Dan Herman. Dan Herman. Yeah, I I, I love uh, when he does panels, and I've always been entertained by by his panels as well, and appreciate his reproductions of uh, of comic history that he puts out through Hermes Press. This is great, and I'm uh, like I said, I'm really happy for you, Nikki. I think it's a great book, and uh, continued success, and looking forward to the next book as well. And uh, yeah, I hope to see you in New York. Uh, at, at yeah, that would be great. Absolutely, absolutely. That would be great. So, so truly, thank you for your time. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate your interest and enthusiasm. It's it means a lot. Um, this has been a long time coming. Yeah, and I, I'm so. glad. I'm glad it's finally happening and everything. And I and believe me, I understand. And uh, no, congratulations. And yeah, can't recommend the book enough. And uh, I'm I'm sure uh, the people that are coming to San Diego will. Uh, Look forward to meeting you and and hearing more about uh, your grandfather's incredible story. So thank you. Thank you. That's Nikki Wheeler-Nicholson. Once again, DC Comics Before Superman is coming out in September. And as Nikki said, she will have uh, copies of the book as well at New York Comic Con. She has uh, pre-release copies available at San Diego. She's doing signings at the Hermes Press table at San Diego Comic-Con. All right, let's uh, get things going now with our buddy Rob Salkowitz. As I said, Rob is going to be talking about the business of pop culture as it's reflected at conventions like San Diego, other places. We also get into the Seamus Brothers' new 
conventions, the Ace Comic Conventions. Rob tells us the good stuff about that and the bad stuff about that. Really interesting conversation, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Rob has a lot of theories of where comics and uh, the geek culture is going in terms of uh, how pop culture receives it, and uh, we talk about that. A lot of his theories are in his book, The Comic-Con and the Business of Pop Culture, uh, and it's, uh, it's a great discussion. I think you're going to enjoy it. So here's Rob Salkowitz on today's Word Balloon. Rob Salkowitz, welcome back to Word Balloon. I'm, I'm thrilled to talk to you, and I know you got a lot of San Diego plans, but like I told you off the air, I'm sad I'm not going to see you this year. Yeah, sorry to miss you. Uh, big, big week coming up, no doubt about it. Well, I want to hear about your lineup of uh, what you're going to be talking about. Um, should we, yeah, let's, 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 uh, should we start with that? Let's start with sure. that. Sure. So the range of stuff that I've, that I'm participating in, in the comics world is getting a little bit wider, which is, which is great. Cause I'm interested in all of it, but I started out as like the business guy. So I sure. do a lot of stuff on the business side. Um, but I got four panels coming up and they're all on different things. And a couple of them are actually about comics, which is, which is super cool. <laughs> um, so if you happen to be in town on the Tuesday before the con starts, that's uh, next Tuesday, the, the 17th, I'm actually doing a thing over at the uh, public library, Seattle Public Library. They have a, every year the Bar Association of San Diego has a thing on comics and the law, and they invite a, a bunch of people um, that are in various aspects of it. So Batten Lash, the cartoonist, um, is going to be there. He does a comic strip about lawyers and supernatural and stuff like that so yes yeah, supernatural, supernatural law, law. Yeah, that's so uh, absolutely um, and then i'm going to be there and we're going to be talking about issues like creator rights and um, copyright and those sorts of things so if you're trying to get into the business those are kind of important things to to know uh once sure. the con itself gets started on they got me first thing thursday morning on a panel called how to get press attention which is a long-standing panel um and it's a mixture of people from press and people from sort of small uh, independent publishers and stuff like that talking about ways to get the big publications like Forbes, which I write for, to write about your independent comic. I try and write uh, probably about 25% of my coverage is on non-big business stuff, even though it's a business publication. Um, so there are ways to get your word out there. And so we're going to talk about that. That's on uh, 1030 on Thursday morning. Um, cool. Thursday afternoon is the one I'm really excited about. Um, I don't know if you've uh, talked about Full Bleed, the new IDW uh, publication that they've been doing. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. yes. So uh, I wrote Dirk Dirk's uh, Dirk Woods' uh, little project. That's absolutely. his baby, and I am absolutely honored to be among the contributors to that this time. I have a, a big piece on comics in galleries and museums, and uh, I don't know if you guys get that in. Uh, in Chicago, but I, there's been more um, comic-themed shows coming to art museums, to pop culture museums. We have a big uh, Marvel show out here in Seattle right now of uh, original artwork and stuff like that. So it's really becoming a thing. So I'm doing a panel, uh, and I've got uh, Emil Ferris, who did, of course, the absolutely stunning uh, Favorite Thing is Monsters book. Um, Chicago's very own M.L. Ferris. Absolutely. absolutely, yeah. She, uh, so she she and I have been uh, talking about this for a while, and a lot of that book takes place in uh, in the museum there, in the Chicago uh, Art Institute. Is that the... Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So she's going to be talking about that, and Nascenti is one of the guests of the convention. Uh, writer and editor is going to be there. We've got, oh, we've great. got Adam Smith, who's Love the Anna guy Sandy. who's just hired yeah. by um, Comic-Con to run their 
so Comic-Con is starting their own comics and pop culture museum in San Diego. And that's going to be live in a couple of years. And the very first word about it that you're going to get will be at my panel um, with Adam is going to be there. Um, and then we've got Kim Munson, who's got a book coming out on uh, on comics and museums called From Panels to Frames. So that's going to be uh, – the, the name of that panel is called Splashing Ink on Museum Walls. Um, <laughs> that's really cool. You know that – and I know it's slightly different than the museum they're planning in San Diego. But I always love going through the sales room – the sale room, excuse me. Is it sales or sale room? Upstairs? Uh, the sale, the sale pavilion, yes. The sale pavilion, yeah. And they always have a great – art show there and you know you always have wonderful pieces there on display but as you say i mean i know being friends with alex ross and his uh, art rep sal abinati that alex has uh you know a curated exhibit that you know tours through a bunch of museums and i know that they've done uh kirby kind of uh, exhibitions as well um so no it's it's about time that uh, comic art really, you know, uh, gets the recognition it deserves. And as you were telling me off the air, I think last week when we were talking about doing this and stuff, it really has become a, a popular attraction for museums. Well, one of the interesting things is they had a big show here in Seattle um, a couple of years ago, and it was like uh, 500 years of illustration. So they have like Rembrandt and Goya and Picasso. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, um, Mount Rushmore of Western art. And then the end of the show was Robert Crumb, and they had all the original pages from Genesis framed on the wall after you've already been through this incredible show. And I was thinking, this is amazing that any living artist is included in this company, much less a cartoonist. Now, you know, words, words out about Crumb. I mean, people know that Crumb is, you know, he's had big museum shows and, and stuff like that. Sure. But I talked to the, the curator at Seattle Art Museum, and she said, surprisingly, it not, was not controversial for them at all to have Crumb as part of this show. They saw it as an opportunity to bring in people who may have never heard of Picasso. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely, man. And what I—that's the thing. Get that. Get that audience in the museum and get them appreciating, you know, the the masters along, along with coming in to see a Jack Kirby piece or a Charles Schultz piece or a Crumb piece. Absolutely. Yeah, and this show. This show at uh, Mopop here in Seattle with the with the Marvel stuff. Um, it's the largest exhibit of of superhero art and artifacts that's ever been mounted in North America, as far as uh, as far as I know. And it's blowing the doors off. It's their, it's their best-selling uh, exhibit in their 20-year history, I think. So- that's excellent, man. You know, I hope uh, I hope MoCA uh, here in uh, – or our, our rather, and I'm, I'm MoCA, I'm, uh, of course, that's New York, but uh, Chicago's uh, uh, Museum of, of uh, uh, Contemporary Art does uh, does something similar because they did a great Bowie exhibit and a great Rolling Stones exhibit in the last couple of years. So they're certainly into pop culture and appreciating the art of pop culture. And yeah, it would seem to me that uh, comics is a no brainer. So I hope that comes to Chicago. And as you say, obviously M.L. Ferris and everything is you know and and her stuff, uh, her her works being inspired by the Art Institute. We had a Liechtenstein exhibit a few years ago, and I remember uh, Fred Van Lente and Crystal Skillman being in town and they came to cake and after cake we all went to the art institute and went through the Liechtenstein stuff so it's you know i mean and, and of course Liechtenstein has that complicated history with comics so it's nice to see that the cartoonists are getting their due and hopefully we'll get more of that in the future that's that's yeah the, that's the, excellent what are the the time is nice on, yeah. for this i mean it's a we're, we're you know it's uh <laughs> it's about time and there's and there's people like emil and bill sinkevich and alex ross and some of these other folks that really you know like they have a claim to being 
the most you know relevant and and interesting and exciting contemporary artists never mind that they're cartoonists and illustrators and stuff like that so it's a it's a cool thing well and i talked to sal abinati who who reps both bill and alex and you know too the last couple years uh alex's uh booth at san diego is definitely more of a gallery presentation and last year they did the same thing with bill and they're doing the same thing again this year i talked to sal he'll be coming up this same week as i'm doing these uh, specific podcasts talking to people like yourself that these are the panels that I would be going to I, at San Diego. And this is kind of my unconventional. That's how I'm framing it. Uh, I wanted interview. to get Bill on the panel and he says, no, nah, I got to stay at the booth because they set up this big fancy booth for me and I got to sit there and yeah. draw and meet the public. <laughs> it's true. It's absolutely true. And he's, he's great. And I, and, and again, as you say, these guys are amazing and it's so interesting Especially in the case, I mean, Alex has always kind of managed to attract people uh, outside of comics and do these incredible pieces. He did uh, the promotional uh, poster for the Academy Awards a couple years ago, um, and he had you know those great. Uh, he had George uh, Bush forty three as uh, Dracula, <laughs> kind of biting biting the neck of the Statue of Liberty. And uh, and and Bill, you know, Bill's been involved, a uh, huge Bernie Sanders uh, supporter and has done a lot of work for the Sanders campaign and uh, also just beautiful work with Jimi Hendrix and uh, a lot of other non-comic book kind of uh, properties and people. And no, these are like these are they're, they're fine artists. They deserve their time. Yeah. Right. Uh, Bill has a piece in the um, in the Mopop show here. It's the promotional piece that he did for New Mutants back in the 80s. And we've probably all seen it it's you know it's like the 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 team you know and there and there's like all this kind of cool decoration around the background when you see the original you see that he actually took circuit boards from computers and cut them up and like <laughs> mounted them that's not like him drawing a circuit board that's a circuit board and uh, Annie Innocenti was the editor and she said um this piece came in and we were like it's gorgeous it's amazing it's a game changer how the hell are we going to print this thing <laughs> That reminds me of Kirby in the seventies when he would kind of get involved with mixed media, and you know he would 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 cut out uh, toy spaceships. And I remember uh, that wonderful scene in uh, Fantastic Four, the the Galactus story, the first Galactus story, where Johnny comes up, uh, upon uh, Galactus's space station, and it's got to be a toy. I mean, if you go back and look, or or those pictures of like the moon. And it was Orion, but it was a real f- a photograph. Orion's like flying over a planet or a moon, and it's clearly a real NASA photograph and stuff. No, I love that stuff. And again, especially, you know, you're talking about from the 80s and stuff. But yeah, that that idea that, you know, anything was handy. And it's certainly David Mack is in that yep. uh, realm as well. And I, and I always love David's pieces as well. David's yep. another guy who really has kind of expanded what uh, comics art should be. I, as I'm sure you do, I love taking non-comic book people into a store today and pointing out the Dave McKeans and the David Max and, and Sienkiewicz and all of these people. And it's like, no, this is comics. I mean, they're thinking, I always say it's like, they're thinking of high and Lois and peanuts and their minds are blown when they see really how great these graphic artists are. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. Well, I hope that the conversation at the convention goes half as well as this because this is uh, – <laughs> it seems to have touched – every time everybody I raise the issue with is like super in, enthusiastic about it. I hope it's going to be a good conversation. And then plus the – you know, I mean Emil is, and, and Annie are both uh, guests of the convention this year. Um, but people have not really gotten a look at Emil Ferris since the book came out. And um, she's a very interesting lady and has got a lot to say. So that, that's going to be fun. 
Absolutely, man. Yes. Yeah, so continue. So, so on Saturday, um, this was kind of an oddball one that the folks from Fantagraphics reached out, and they want me to moderate a panel that they're doing on Saturday afternoon on on comics anthologies, um, and they've got a whole bunch of terrific people on the panel. Uh, Carol Tyler and Manuel Fear and people like that are going to be on it. Um, Eric Reynolds from Fantagraphics. Um, so we're going to be looking at the at the history and current movement in. Uh, alt comics anthologies. Uh, Excellent! Wow. Will things like the benefit books that have uh, come out in the last couple of years, uh, you know, people like us, and or isn't it the, that's the Vegas one, I believe? And uh, I just had J. H. Williams and um, and Will Tennyson to talk about that, or or where we live. That's what it was called. And then Love is Love. I don't know if those qualify for specifically what you're talking about as far as the anthologies you're going to Honestly, for that one, your guess is as good as mine. i got to sit down and okay. uh, powwow with the, the Fantagraphics people. It was kind of a um, uh, – it's, it's a little bit of a stretch for me to be doing that, and I'm, I'm very interested in it. Of course, the Fantagraphics people are my homeboys here in Seattle, um, and I keep, I'm very interested in all the stuff that they're doing. So that'll be a that'll be kind of an interesting conversation. Um, and then uh, – on Sunday, this was – I don't know how this plum landed in my lap, but um, Jason Lutz uh, has been working on Berlin, this historical graphic novel yes. since the late 90s. And it's suddenly a very timely story, unfortunately. It's about the um, collapse of the Weimar Republic to German democracy and the rise of fascism in the early 30s, seen through the eyes of a bunch of – unbelievably well-conceived and and uh, fully realized characters. So he hasn't exactly been, you know, um, like clockwork on getting these out there. So it's been a long time coming. Book three is finally coming out at the end of um, – uh, in September. Jason's going to be a guest at the convention. I get to talk to him about this. I love the work. Um, it's going to yes. be a great privilege to uh, – he's going to be doing a presentation that's kind of a retrospective of his career, and I think I'm going to be moderating a, a Q&A. Um, but anybody that's a fan of contemporary graphic literature, like that's – there's a lot to choose from at Comic-Con, as there is always. Um, but I hope that that gets a good turnout. It's uh, Sunday at noon. Um, Drawn and Quarterly is uh, you know, the publisher, and they're, they're organizing it. Um, but I hope people come to that because it's a very interesting uh, piece of work. Um, really interesting. It'll be really interesting to hear what he has to say about it. Absolutely. And, you know, again, all four of what uh, the, the panels that you're doing, this is what I love about San Diego because it's it's real. it really seems like only San Diego has all of these kinds of panels. And then, of course, you have the DC and Marvel panels and you have the movie and, and television panels as well. But it's it, this is where I know – and I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir – and and by all means start singing along. But yeah, that it's like it's so easy for people who don't go to San Diego to say it's just about the TV shows and the movies and Hall H. And that is what CNN, USA Today, and the major uh, networks and and you know uh, news networks cover. But it's these kind of panels that really make San Diego still such a unique experience. And it can be just about comics if you want it. To. Oh, absolutely. And it, it you know. Um... I had a panel that I was pitching that I'm sorry I didn't get that was on a future of animation and I had a whole bunch of uh, really cool people that are involved in the sort of technology of animation and augmented reality and VR and all this cool stuff Mm -hmm. um, that were lined up for that. Um, 
and didn't make it onto the onto the calendar. And then I see from the program they have plenty of. If you're a fan of animation and that kind of stuff, there's lots of good stuff. Um, I'm really looking forward to Venture Brothers myself. That um, excellent. Oh, that's fantastic. So uh, Jackson Public and. Uh, the guys are going to be there. That's yeah, fantastic. Doc, Doc Hammer. So I'm, break, I'm breaking Hammer. some news yeah. about uh, Venture Brothers on Monday. I have a piece going up on uh, on Forbes. Um, I had a I sat down and had an interesting conversation with them. And uh, if you're a fan of that show, uh, you may want to check it out. We're going to well, have an exclusive clip. This is going to come out after Monday. So if you do, you mind uh, t- uh, letting us know? And I, I swear to God, it'll be out after <laughs> after your thing is posted. We want to direct it's, people to your. It's piece. A, basically, it's a it's an it's an interview where they where the you know I ask them about stuff that people want to know about, like is there going to be a feature film and why does it take so goddamn long for them to. <laughs> the season's out, but the, but there's also going to be an exclusive clip. It probably won't be exclusive by the time people listen to it. Um, but but the new shows are dropping uh, starting in uh, first week of August. Um, Thank God, that, as we as we as we suffer through our Rick and Morty, uh, you know, withdrawals. Thank God, the Venture Brothers are back, and it's so funny because I just got into Rick and Morty halfway through the final season. I always name drop. Dan Slot's the guy's like, why aren't you watching this? It's amazing. And it is. It's so funny. And, it, and of course, it crossed my mind. It's like, man, it's been a while since we <laughs> had a new Venture Brothers series. And, and they pair up really nicely and everything. So thank God there's new episodes coming back in, in uh, you say, in the fall? No, no, in, no. In, uh, in, in, in August. August 5th. Oh, in yeah. August. Shame that's, on me. Okay, that's, yeah. Very cool. Um, so that's part of the news. I don't know if they had announced I don't know if they had announced the date yet, but that was uh, so. That's when it's going to be. And that, that at the panel at Comic Con, they're going to have some preview episodes and stuff like that. Um, so, and, and that'll be on your Forbes. That'll be on your Forbes uh, column. Yeah, and then um, I've got a curtain raiser going up uh, tomorrow, which is uh, Friday for me. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. uh, uh, an overall look at the programming and how the programming is um, is decided. And I talked to David Glanzer. You know, they have um, twenty two hundred hours of programming. Over the over Jesus. the course of a weekend, over Jesus. I count from from Thursday through yeah, Sunday. Yeah, I counted up for the article uh, eight hundred and fifty programs um, on the site, and now I just went back to like refresh my memory, and I can see they've added a whole bunch of stuff. Like when I was counting them, it didn't have the movies or the gaming stuff or any of that stuff on there. It's probably well over a thousand at this point, and that's just nuts. I, I mean, you think about a show like New York Comic Con, which is a great show, has plenty of programming, and I think they have 250 programs or something like that, and it feels like a lot. But this is, you know, at San Diego, people spend all their time, you know, sort of in the dealer's room or going to the activations or, you know, like that kind of thing or going to the big panels. There's so much going on there. It's very, very interesting. Oh, sure. And through the years, I mean, you know, got to see – uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez interviewed by Arnold Drake. Oh wow! And before Arnold passed away, and and stu- you know one of a kind of things like that. Or um, William, uh, okay, oh now I hope I'm, I'm saying his name right. An old Twilight Zone writer, William Clayton. William Clayton Thomas. I want William to say. Clayton Johnson. I know. I know who you mean. William Clayton Johnson. Yes, exactly. Thank yes. you. Um, the guy who he wrote the Kick the Can Twilight Zone episode. He wrote the first aired Star Trek episode, The Man Trap, yes. uh, wrote the original story that became Ocean's Eleven, co-wrote Logan's Run, and um, was, you know, just on this little, you know, 50-seat panel, and I got Andy Parks, the anchor writer, and I'm like, Andy, we got it. I'm like, do you know who this guy is? He's like, no, and then I started rattling off his credits. He's like, oh, yeah, let's meet him, and after the panel, we got him outside of, uh, you know, in the hallway, and we just went up to him, and you know, God, he was—you know—it was really one of the last times he was at San Diego. 
definitely in his late 80s or whatever. But he was so great to us, and we took a picture with him. And he's like, oh, boys, thank you very much for the interest. And we're both like, boys, we're in our mid-40s. <laughs> but to him, we were boys. But it was great. And, and again, you know, I got to see uh, Ray Harryhausen and uh, Ray Bradbury together before they passed away. And they were, you yep. know, fixtures at San Diego. And that's the thing. You know, Max Collins always comes and I think flies under the general radar. And I love his writing, um, both in comics and his novels as well. Um, there's just always this great opportunity to meet, especially if you're an, an Uber nerd and you know these kinds of names. They're there. Well, that's what. That's they, why you got to you got to scroll through the um, the program and look for the boldface yes. names because, like any other convention, this was the amazing thing. Even in the early days, when I first was going to Comic Con in the late '80s, or sorry, the late '90s, and you know, the, like the first year I went there, and they, I, I was looking at the announced guests, and it's like the, you know, it's like the Hernandez brothers and like um, uh, uh, Scott McCloud and Kurt Busiek, and you know, like there was, it was like good people, and I was like, okay, this is cool. Sure. Then I walk in the door, and there's like Neil Adams and Stan Lee and Will Eisner and Jim Steranko, and it's like, who has a Comic Con that has all these people? There and they don't even bother to announce. Oh yeah, they're going to be there. Don't worry about that. Or n- never mind all the all the celebrities and everything. Like I was going through. There's a really interesting panel on Afrofuturism. Uh, that's uh, some sometime. I think it's on Saturday afternoon or something like that. Nichelle Nichols is on the panel. Oh, that's great. Right? I mean, man, talk about yes. authoritative. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Then, exactly. You know, there's the like, person that's been there from the beginning and can really tell you where things are going and everything and have again you know i keep lucking out and having those kinds of people that are older and have that perspective of being pioneers like like nichelle is and can also speak to with clarity and compare what's going on today with the struggles of what she went through back in the 60s and everything and that's fantastic to be able to hear from people and like it's that, great that she's, you know that she's still out and seeing the fans and stuff like that i mean these people are not going to be oh, with yeah. us forever and if you if you want to see them and hear what they have to say or express your appreciation you know now's the time uh one one other thing i got to plug is if you're a fan of of Nichelle nichols and some of the uh the eisner awards on friday night has an all-star line of presenters, some of whom have been announced and some of whom are still uh, secret. And, you know, people kind of, you know, Friday night, people have their own plans and stuff like that. Eisner Award's definitely something uh, you should put on your calendar. I'm saying that my wife is a volunteer on the Eisner Awards, and she's, so she's, she's involved with it, and so she's seen the, the full lineup. And I can tell you uh, that's uh, – uh, plus you get to see the best work of the year honored, and uh, a lot of the creators are there too, so – Absolutely. I was there last year as a guest of Tom King, and um, we had a great time. And uh, immediately afterwards, everyone adjourns to uh, really what is the lobby of the, you know, in front of the room that they have the Eisners in. And everyone really just hangs out and has like a round or two of drinks before they wrap up the night. And that's when Warren and Louise Simonson, or Walter and Louise Simonson, were available. And Dave Gibbons, I got, you know, I'm hanging with him for 10 minutes. And in years past, that's when I met Frank Miller. And uh, that's when they are their most accessible because they're just chilling yes. and, and saying hi to everybody. And you're absolutely right. It's, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to, uh, it's, it's a fun event. Bill Morrison yes. always does a great job emceeing. And he's really funny. And, you know, he's, uh, he's of, uh, the Simpsons and Futurama and Bongo Comics and uh, certainly Mad Magazine. I was going to say editor of so Mad Magazine now, right? 
that's <laughs> the current editor of Mad. So he really is a very entertaining guy, and he is of the community. So it's great that he really, you know, can do both. And yes, always amazing uh, su- surprise celebrity guests. Wayne Brady and uh, uh, Greg Grunberg, among uh, celebrities that I can think of off the top of my head that were there last year. And also, uh, it seemed like last year they finally, because it's, it's, a, it's a long awards yeah. uh, presentation. But I thought last year they did a really good job of keeping things moving. They do. And, and, and it's a great cross-section, too of mainstream and also alternative comics, and they're all celebrated at the Eisner. And they do have a bar in the back. Uh, this is true. But uh, based <laughs> on the names that I have seen there, there are people that are going to be at the Eisner Awards that you would line up around the building to see. So uh, just a word to the wise if, if this goes out in time for that. Uh, if not, then you'll you'll have, oh, yeah, you'll have read the will. news by the time it happens. But it's a... It, it's a very interesting evening. The post-Eisner party, since you mentioned it, is the site of my first and still one of my best all-time uh, things that ever happened to me at San Diego. This is the first year I went down there. I was just a fan. Didn't know any. Didn't know anybody. I was there by myself because my wife was like, eh. she wasn't so sure about it back then. Um, so I'm so I'm hanging out at the at the Eisner after party, 1997, and uh, it's at the Hyatt. I went upstairs. I was I didn't know anybody. I'm just kind of milling around. I walk upstairs and there's these guys playing cards at this table in the back. And sitting at the table is Scott McCloud, Kurt Busick, Steve Bissett, and Will Eisner. Oh, that's great. And they're playing Five Card Nancy, which is this nutty game that Cloud invented <laughs> where they cut out panels from the Nancy strip and you you sort of play them like go fish, you know, it's like you put one down and then everybody votes up or down whether the sort of story makes sense. <laughs> So I'm sitting there watching. I'm like, what the hell are you playing? They, they explained the rules to me, and they said, do you want to – we'll deal you in. So here I am sitting wow. at this thing. And then, of course, you know, Will Eisner plays a card. And what am I going to say? Like, sorry, Will, like, you got to pick that card up because your storytelling is uh, – <laughs> you know, isn't really, isn't really doing it on this one. Like, I don't know. It was surreal. And from then on, that's, that's when I was hooked. That was like – That's fantastic. My first Eisner's, that is when I met Frank Miller – and this was 2006, so podcasting was still relatively new. And I'm like, oh, Frank, I'd love to have you on the podcast. He's like, oh, yeah, sure. Give me a card. And I was out of cards. I'm like, I don't have a card. And he shrugged and walked away oh. in classic Frank Miller fashion. And I'm like, no, come back. <laughs> Shane, come back. So it was tough. I want to point out another thing that you really should comb the main floor because every now and then they will have – celebrities available for signings at random uh, booths. And that's how I met Richard Anderson, Oscar Goldman from The Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman. And that's the only thing he was doing that weekend. And there was no line. And I (laughs) walked up and had a lovely 10-minute conversation. And being a movie nerd, I know he was one of those guys that was under contract at Universal going back to the 50s and had great Cary Grant stories and just being a contract player and the the various big stars that he got a chance to do supporting roles with, not to mention his bionic years as well. Could not have been a nicer guy. I got an autographed picture with him, and it's one of my favorite San Diego mementos. So, and I know George Lazenby. I missed mm. him, uh, but he was there one year just at a just at a booth and didn't even have a panel. But there's. You know, one of the great James Bonds, you know, and, and granted, people might say, well, maybe not one of the great ones, maybe the people level. <laughs> He's James Bond, man. <laughs> it was pretty cool that he was just there hanging out, doing signings. So you, you never Whatever know. you think you of George Lazenby, you can, you can always say, I'm James Bond and you're not. 
So that's that. true. Hey, man. Well, that and you know, uh, I was saying, I don't know what your things, feelings are on this. As as we hear that uh, they're pushing back the next Indiana Jones movie, I keep saying before they recast a brand new young actor to play Indiana Jones, they really have to let uh, Sean Patrick Flannery do one movie oh. because he was you know young teen Indiana Jones in the TV series. And Art Balthazar once went up to him and said, "Hey, man, you know, for, you know, Boondock Saints is great." But let's not forget, you are Indiana Jones. And he's like, you're damn right, I'm Indiana Jones. And it's like, hey, save money. Give that guy five mil to make the movie. And and you've got it, it legitimizes the TV show that much more, I think, if you have an adult Sean Patrick Flannery doing one indie movie. I, I'd go see it. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is, this is another kind of a deep, deep cut pro tip on, on navigating Comic-Con is read the booth signing stuff carefully because – one time I'm walking around and I spot Grant Morrison at this tiny little indie comics booth. He was there doing a signing as a favor for some creator that was a friend of his. Usually the line for Grant Morrison is around the block, you know, and, and he's sitting yep. there all by himself. And I walked up and we ended up chatting for 15 or 20 minutes. He did a sketch for me in my sketchbook. So, oh, that's great. Wow. People go flipping through my sketchbook. They say, who drew this? Because <laughs> you can't read a signature. Instead, <laughs> it was Grant Morrison. So, that's fantastic. That's, you know, and that, that happened with me and uh, Darwin Cook oh. uh, a couple times in the past as well. Or he'd be at a smaller booth. That's- and I had the opportunity to, you know, really get some face-to-face time with him. Great guy. And, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, no, you're right about that. So well again, Rob, this is why I'm having you on to to talk about these kind of tips and stuff. Now you've got a you're in a uh, a book of essays, right, about uh, an interesting spin on uh, superheroes. Yeah, that, so this is this just came out today. Actually, today is the first day. I still don't have my copy yet, but I'm told it's really cool. It's called Superheroes and Economics: uh, the the Shadowy World of Capes, Masks, and Invisible Hands. And uh, I'm listed as the co-editor of this book, which is uh, an act of uh, charity by the by the real mastermind behind it, who is uh, uh, Professor Brian O'Rourke of Robert Morris University in Pittsburgh. And he's a he's an economist, and he has been he's been teaching economics at the university level for a while, and he has found that it's really helpful, you know, for for students these days to have relatable examples. And so he's been using examples out of comics and superhero movies to make points about different things. So you're talking about entrepreneurship. Well, there's Tony Stark, and he's an entrepreneur, and this is how entrepreneurs make their money, and these are the challenges that they face or stuff like that. So he decided to do a um, uh, collection of essays where real economists look at the financial problems of different superheroes – and apply like actual economics to them. So it's like, you know, there's stories about, you know, how, how does Spider-Man pay the rent? And, <laughs> and so Captain America was frozen in ice for 80 years since World War II. How's his portfolio doing? And, you know, it's an opportunity to look at, you know, here's how economic growth works. And if you put money in the bank in 1945, it's going to be worth a lot more money in 2018. <laughs> but there's different ways that you can make money. And, you know, like it's all this stuff. So I'm not an economist, but uh, I thought oh, this is a fun project. So I did a, I ended up contributing a piece on um, uh, economic realism and Alan Moore uh, in his work. So I looked at uh, Watchmen, Miracle Man, and V for Vendetta, which are three of his earlier works where he really. Mm-hmm created these very real worlds to put superheroes in. And he was one of the first guys to to do that, to really go through and say, w- think systematically, what would the world look like 
if if there was actually superheroes. Um, so of course, Watchmen is the most famous example where you've got all of these, um, you know, uh, politics and Adrian Veidt. Yeah, Adrian Veidt is he has the the nostalgia company that makes the the sense and also yeah well you tell me you're the one who probably like explored really oh. all the different areas that Ozymandias uh, had in his uh, portfolio so that's actually the pivotal scene that's one of the ones that I look at because it's his superpower is that he can sort of he's so smart that he can put all the pieces together at the time that Alan Moore was writing that in the early 80s less than 100 miles from where Alan Moore was writing in London, there was a group of uh, economists that were putting together a, a modeling methodology called scenario planning, which is doing exactly what Moore was doing in a fictional world, which is sort of extrapolating from the world that we're in right now and posing a whole bunch of what ifs and then sort of mm -hmm. coming up with like, so you know, what are the what are the good bets that we should be looking at in a whole bunch of different variable futures? Um, so I, I so I drew a, a, a parallel because this, this is a method that I use in my in my business stuff a lot, um, you know, in in um, Comic-Con in the business of pop culture, for example, at the end, when I looked at the, the sort of possible futures of the comics industry from the vantage point of 2012, uh, mm -hmm. You know, looking out into the future, where would we be going? And I was using a, a, a example of that kind of planning. Um, so it was very interesting. You know, you read read Watchmen. There's a lot of stuff going on. One of the things that's going on is the world building that Moore was doing in that book, and also in Miracle Man. Is some interesting examples of. Um, the same sort of things that economists do to try and figure out what the you know, if if we do this, then what are the things we can expect to happen? Yeah, the impact. And and again, when you include superheroes into a, a real uh, culture structure, yeah, what are what are some of the things? Well, God, you can I'm sure go to top ten as well. And there's all those great billboards of you know the the uh, the eye candy that you get in a lot of what Gene Ha put on the page, and I'm sure through Alan's uh, instruction yep. as well. But, you know, songs coming from the radio that are superhero related and uh, products that are created that clearly, you know, touch on uh, a, a superhero facet in some way. No, I love that. And also, you know, it's funny you say that about how economists do it to see where business trends are going. Uh, Brad Meltzer has been on before and certainly from a security standpoint, uh, the government uh, is constantly running those kinds of what if scenarios. Yep. Of, of possible terrorist attacks or any sort of attacks. And uh, I know Meltzer's been involved with those before. Bendis has been involved with those before. And it is interesting that they go to uh, the comic book people uh, knowing that they have <laughs> good imaginations and can kind of like figure out where, you know, where these things might actually go. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting thing. So the book is um, is a collection of all of these essays, and they're really pretty interesting. There's a really cool one. One of my favorite ones in the book is um, is a guy looked at African economic development post-colonialism and compared it with Wakanda and talking about all of the ways that like <laughs> cool. Wakanda departs from the norm of, of, uh, of African economic development and politics and stuff like that is a very, uh, very smart piece. Um, interesting, uh, work. The problem is honestly, I would love for people to read this, but it's, uh, it's out from, uh, the, the publisher is, uh, Rutledge, which is an academic press, and uh, it's not really priced for 
to fly off the shelves, let's say. I think the paper – For consumers. It's uh, Yeah, you were telling me this yeah. uh, when we were talking last so week. So again, not to discourage anybody, it's 40 bucks for the paperback and it's like 120 bucks for the hardcover. And those are meant for libraries and, and academic institutions and stuff like that. I hope they make a trade edition available. I hope they maybe drop the price on the digital um, version because um, I'm – I'm I'm proud of the work. It's 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 good stuff, but it's uh, again it's a little bit of a departure from the the business. It was kind of fun to get into a different kind of writing about writing about comics, um, but it's just kind of a cool thing. And it's I get my name on the spine of a book, which is uh, that never sucks. Exactly. Well, you know, in mentioning uh, the university presses and 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 those kinds of academic publications, that is another facet of panels. That happens at San Diego that if you're really not looking for that, you're really missing some interesting panels. And I know you and I have been in the room with like maybe 20 people and they've got like four uh, people on a panel up there talking about comics that you maybe have never heard of. And sometimes they're fascinating stories. I remember one and I'm pretty sure you were in the audience too. I don't remember the name of the comic, but essentially it was a comic that was created for post-World post War II Japan to normalize American Japanese relations, and and it really was this kind of uh, positive po- propaganda cartoon again meant to you know ease relations in this post world period, and it was fascinating. And this this academic had just was just talking about you know who drew it and why and had examples and stuff. Or there was a great one, and I can't remember the name of the creator of uh, Crazy Cats and uh, Ignat. Oh, Harriman, yes, the, the, yeah, Harriman, a wonderful talk about Harriman. I remember, too, a wonderful one about uh, black comic creators, uh, going back to people like Matt Baker and the like of the 40s. Matt Baker, for people who don't know, was one of the great artists that did the original Phantom Girl 1940s uh, comics, among other works that he did. And yeah, it's constantly really interesting stuff. Or I'm sure uh, Tencent Archie came uh, came in your uh, point of view when it was out a couple years ago. A great study of uh, Archie from the uh, the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And maybe it was purely the 1960s. But it was great. And it just, again, these wonderful kind of, uh, you know, pieces that academics do to kind of just take a look at pop, pop culture through the transom of comics. And they're fascinating. They're really, yeah. really interesting pieces. Well, the cool thing is that the the... The academic study of comics has so many different applications. I mean, I teach at the University of Washington. I teach a class in comics as media, and it's talking about comics as like a storytelling platform and how it how comic stories translate to other, you know, to film and TV and video and video games and all of this other stuff. But starts with the with what makes comics comics and all of that. So you know, like that's what, and that's in the communications department. A lot of this stuff is in comp lit, or it's in. Um, you know, American studies or, um, you know, queer studies, gender studies, all of this stuff. Uh, The cool thing about the economics book is that this is one of the first ones that's in social sciences. Um, So this so economics really, um, this is new territory for them. So we'll see, we'll see how the profession um, embraces that, that, that sort of hybrid. Uh, But one of the, one of the other cool things I do is that there's a professor who curate, he has students from all over the country um, that sign up for this program, and they come to Comic-Con to do anthropological ethnography studies of different facets of Comic-Con. Um, so I meet with them on uh, – because they read, they read my book on Comic-Con and the business of pop culture um, as, a, as kind of an orientation. 
Um, and then I have a Q&A with them on, on usually on Wednesday afternoon. I meet with the professor and the whole group. And then they present their research on Sunday afternoon. I always love going to that panel. Oh wow! Because um, because all that's cool. All yeah, I haven't done that come, before. Very yeah, cool. they all come out and they yeah. they uh, they they present the results of their findings, and it's always very interesting. It's like they talk to, you know, uh, um, gender bending cosplayers or uh, you know people waiting in line for the Outlander panel, or you know, like they they have their they have their thing <laughs> that they're looking at, and they contribute to our understanding of it. So that's really great. Now you know, mentioning that and also mentioning your book, I. Uh, I saw a couple of weeks ago you finally went to one of those ace comic panels that uh, the Seamus brothers have been putting yes. on. The former uh, guys who were behind Wizard Magazine and also the Wizard Conventions. Yes. They are no longer part of the Wizard team. They've now created their own new kind of, uh, I'm putting in air quotes, Comic-Con. It really isn't. It's more about, it seems, uh, the celebrity autograph shows that some of these uh, other conventions while they call themselves Comic-Cons, and there might be an artist alley or something, the main focus seems to be more about the photo ops with the Justice League or, you know, the cast of uh, Twilight or, or whatever. So so tell me your experience at uh, one of these ages. So this is one where I have to really step back because, like you, I'm inclined to kind of give the side-eye to that side of the business because it doesn't seem – it's not my kind of thing. I'm not that interested in the celebrities and the autographs and everything, but lots of people are. And sure. and uh, one thing I got to take my hat off to the Seamus brothers is they really understand the market and they understand a certain kind of customer and what these and what these folks want and they put together this show that really delivered the goods and what I was talking to Garib about it he kept saying this is a superhero convention not a comic convention um, they call it a comic con as part of their branding which they may want to reconsider that for a couple for a couple of reasons but. Fundamentally, it's a superhero show. So they had um, uh, they had a bunch of the uh, folks from the Avengers. They had uh, the, uh, Tom Holland, Spider Man. They had uh, Paul Bettany, and they had a few. They had a few. Their their big guys, Chris Evans and Hemsworth, didn't um, uh, couldn't make it. But they had a they had a really good lineup for a show for a first year show. They filled their venue in Seattle. They didn't overload the dealers' room, so they had maybe maybe 100 exhibitors, maybe 80. And of those, five or six people selling comics, five or six people selling toys, a couple of artists, a couple of print people, stuff like that. So they weren't all competing with each other. And as I was going through that, all the dealers made money, much more money than they thought they were going to make. Some of them said they did okay. better at this show than they did at Emerald City, which is a much more comics-oriented show. Absolutely. Also much yeah. larger, also, lots yes. more stuff going on there to, to do your money. Also, the format of their convention was very interesting. As you walk in, and instead of you walk in in the dealer's room and then the, the programs are upstairs, here you walked into the main auditorium, and they had enough seating in this room, something like eleven or 12,000 people they could fit, so that anybody that was at the show, anybody that bought a ticket could get a seat. You don't have to line up. If you want to see Tom Holland... Here he is. So he's in the main room, and then you have to like leave the main room, and that's where the dealers are. Um, so I thought that was very interesting, and they had a pretty for for a show that wasn't focused on you know like the art and publishing aspect real at mm -hmm. all. They had pretty good representation of artists, and they had art programs for they had stuff for kids. Um, they had community stuff. I mean, it was it was interesting. It was a little more, as I said, not 
focused on the stuff that that personally turns me on. But the attendees that I talked to were having a good time. They sold a lot of tickets. Um, it was transactional, but that's what people wanted. And they were very shrewd about identifying Seattle as the market for this because even though we have eight or nine gigantic between Emerald City and PAX and uh, uh, SakuraCon, you know, we've got it covered for pop culture. Emerald City basically said, we have a great show. We don't need the tip-top celebrity people. They have a few. They have good people that come there. But that's not the focus sure. of that show. So Ace says, fine, we'll do a celebrity show. And so everybody's happy. If you don't like, if you don't like uh, Ace, go to Emerald City, go to Jet City, go to Renton Comic Con, go to one of these smaller shows yeah. where they get – They had like, there was a show up here where they had Howard Chaikin and Steranko and Neil Adams at the – at the show Bellingham Comic Con or something like that. And, you know, great lineup of talent. You were telling me before you came on the air that there's a show in Connecticut coming up, right? That's that's right. I'm, instead of San Diego, I'm doing Terrificon. People probably heard the uh, commercial at the beginning of the podcast. And, uh, yeah, it's at Mohegan Sun, the uh, the Native American casino out there. And Mike Barr, Jim Starlin, uh, Roy Thomas, uh, David Michelini, uh I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just uh, going off names off the top of my head. Don McGregor, and yeah, great classic comic creators, along with C.B. Sabolsky, Charles Soule, Nick Spencer, um, you know, Mike Norton, Tim Seeley. Yeah. So great contemporary names, Ryan Stegman. So it's a nice mix of comic book people, and they do have an autograph section. And Henry Winkler's going to be there, and Sam Jones, uh, the woman who plays Mantis in the Guardians movies. Cool. Uh, you know, yeah, they have it's it's a good mix. Yeah. It leans more on classic comic book creators, just like you said with Storenko and Howard and uh, and Neil and stuff. And but it's it's a great combination. Christopher Priest is also going to be there. And yeah, no, it's that's cool. Well, I had a question about the Ace show. So when you say like there's so there's twelve thousand seats. So Tom pa- uh, Tom Holland does a panel for and and in the main room I'm assuming and like you said there's enough seats to accommodate everybody is it is it like that it is happening in the main room had, and so at, yes. it's kind of on the PA and everything yeah and they had Kevin Smith there as the as the MC and he was he was running the panels and for the most part he was uh he was pretty good there was one of one of the panels that kind of went off the rails because honestly people in the audience were asking questions that were idiotic and embarrassing even by <laughs> Comic-Con standards <laughs> For celebrity panels, it was pretty. It was pretty rough. So, um, but they had uh, uh, Tom Hiddleston was there. I mean, it was a good. It was a good lineup. Cool. And again, it's like so. If you're into that stuff, there's Ace Comic Con. There's the um, the other guy from Wizard, uh, Macaluso, has his own uh, company that's uh, that's doing those kind of shows. I didn't know that. Um, how about the How about Steve Amell's uh, shows that he's been doing? Isn't it Heroes and Villains? Isn't that uh, Arrow from the yep. uh, television show for people who don't know who I'm talking about? Which is probably there's very that. Cute. There's the Walker Stalker. I mean, there's all of this yes. stuff. But then, if that was the only thing that was going on in the convention space, you know, people would be justifiably upset. And there was a big uh, to do earlier this year when it was announced that uh, uh, Bud Plant, the great uh, art. Uh, book yes. dealer um, will for the first time in 49 years not be exhibiting at San Diego Comic Con. Heartbreaking. I always go to Bud Plant's, uh, you know, uh, 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 area because he always has these great books that only he still has and, and distributes. Go on. Yeah, and me too. And I'm I'm personally bummed about that because it's one less place that I'm going to shop. But it's not yeah. like. I mean, Bud is still with us. He's still in business. Yes. And there are much better places. If you like that kind of stuff, 
he sets up at at shows where his you know they'll have one one hundredth of the attendance, but he'll get ten times the people because they're his customers. And so you know if you go to you know and I use this term with all due affection, you know these old fart comic cons for people like us. <laughs> You know, yeah. and they're selling comic books, and they got the, the 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 talent that we remember from the '70s and '80s when we were reading Absolutely. comics and stuff like that. They're much more approachable. They're much more low key. They're cheaper. You know, and yeah. and and yeah. if that's the experience you want, then that experience is available in spades right now. It's not like there's only one game in town, or even you know, 50 games in town. There's like thousands. So. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Go on. Yeah, I mean it's 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 uh San Diego Comic-Con is the is a special case and I tell people this is what happens when we've won the argument. For you know, 30 <laughs> years we've been saying, you know, goddammit, people need to pay attention to comic books cuz the stories are great and these characters are good and if people just give them a chance, great, we win. Everybody everybody loves comics. Everybody <laughs> loves superheroes now. This is our prize. We get San Diego Comic-Con as it is today, which fortunately still has plenty to offer for everybody. So, but you know, they're contemporary that and contemporary comics culture is at least part that. And some would say mostly that I've, I've asked you this before regarding your book, because you kind of had four different scenarios for the future, as I remember, yep. uh, from your book in, in 2012. Uh, it seems like we are, uh, based on what we're talking about right now, at kind of a combination of a couple of the future scenarios that you laid out, and I wonder if you wanted to articulate. Yeah, so there, where so, you think we are. Right yeah, now. so there were basically in the in the book I had sort of four scenarios. One of you know if one set of scenarios where where it was the big companies that are driving the industry, um, and there was sort of a, a good scenario of that, which is where comics become all media, which I called Endless Summer, which is pretty much where we're at right now. Um, because of all, and that predicted a lot of consolidation, and it said stuff like crazy, crazy predictions like Amazon was going to buy Comixology, and you know, di- and you know, uh, the Marvel Disney thing Close. was going to generate billions <laughs> and billions of dollars, and you know, AT and T was going to buy Warner Brothers, and all this stuff, and you know, lo and behold, that's that's the future that we're living in for most of the media world. There was also one in there called um, Infinite Crisis, which talked about basically the collapse of the comic publishing industry um, and the direct market because the direct market couldn't find a way out of the box that it was in and that was going to kind of drag down everything with it. And that is kind of I mean I'm I'm hoping the publishers are getting smarter about where they're putting their books. This DC and Walmart thing is very interesting, but it's not the Agreed. the most interesting thing DC is doing is their new lines for young readers and and Absolutely. Yes, the Zoom line and I forget the the other line that they're doing. Yes, and a couple of my friends are involved with that. Art and Franco are doing a Superman of Smallville book that is clearly geared towards tweens, you know, to a 10 to 12-year-olds and everything. And, so it's, uh, yeah, and the, the on, secret yeah. is that they're not treating this as like the as like the ghetto or the training wheels comics. They're putting A-list talent on these books. They're yes. making books that any reader would want to read, which honestly they should have been doing – 10 years ago, but better late than never. But I mean, sure. I, you know, and that's where the, that's where the action is. So that's good. Good for them. I think Marvel is trying to do some of the same, some of the same stuff and they have sort of selected titles and they have different channel strategies for, you know, uh, um, devil dinosaur and moon girl versus their other stuff, right. that kind of thing. So I think that, that I think Marvel institutionally is a little more resistant to 
they've got their brand. Their brand is for, you know, guys from their mid-teens to their late 20s. And mm-hmm. anybody else that wants to read Marvel Comics is welcome. But that's, you know, like they've got their audience that they that's own. The and that's... Yeah. So, all right, fine. That, but, but, you know, they're trying to get more... Um, out of it, but the direct market is in is in bad shape, and there's a lot of stuff going on with that. And I hope, uh, you know, every year it looks like it's you know do or die time. So I hope that that happens. So those two are coming true at the same time. The two other scenarios were around like you know sort of bottom up. Um, one of them sort of you know with comics as literature, um, and in the book I talk about like like everything else has collapsed and that's all there is left is comics as literature. Well, that hasn't happened because comics as literature has happened as its own thing. And that was also comics and museums and all this other stuff that we're talking about. Sure. And you, like last year I was putting together my top 10 list for, for best comics of the year. I could have had 20. I could have had 25. Of course. Of course. Any book that came out in 2017 that was in the – you know, in the top 25 graphic novels could have been top 10 any other year. So we're in a real renaissance for that. And then the last one was sort of uh, comics, sort of this internationalization of comics. And that's happening too, but it's not being a real market force. It's just creatively, there's a lot more talent coming from elsewhere in the world and getting their voices out there. And that's good too. So it's like pieces of them are all coming together. But I think the predominant mode that we're in right now is that endless summer. It's going to be interesting to see, and you mentioned that Amazon might get in the business, uh, that instead, you know, Netflix has gotten in the comic business specifically with Mark Miller. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, Mark Mark released his first Netflix comic book. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that uh, relationship develops. And really, it's it's a, it's set in stone. I mean, they, they've bought these IPs, I think 15 or 17 of Mark's uh, different IPs that he's created that aren't wanted and kick-ass and uh kingsman that have already been you know taken by other studios but you know uh you know jupiter circle is in the in the works and you know uh oh god chrononauts i think is in the works i mean it's really interesting and it's going to be fun to see how that stuff works hand in hand both as comic books and also potential tv and movie properties and then of course kirkman i guess uh Actually, Amazon is getting in the business a little bit with Kirkman and uh, his future uh, development deals. Yeah, it's. I mean, it remains to be seen. I feel like the market is very crowded with these. Um, you know, like Amazon has been publishing as their own imprint called Jet City. Has anybody ever seen these comics on the shelf? I didn't know that. Wow, I've seen. You know, yeah, the you know uh, Jimmy Palmiotti made me aware of Jet City a few years ago. I had no idea that that was under Amazon's own. That's Amazon. No, that was there. That was theirs from the start. Always. Then there's le- crazy. There's legendary comics. Has anybody seen these books on the shelves? I mean, they, it's like they have trade books. That's a good. Point. I mean, Frank Miller and Bob Trek and like good people are involved in yes. that. But like we're and um, every, it feels like every week I'm getting an announcement of a new imprint that's coming that has some like really exciting stuff and like a list talent and all this. Good, Who's going to buy these books? How are they going to get to market? They, you know, it's. Um, I do think in the cases of Kirkman and, and uh, Mark Miller, given the amount of properties they have, because Kirkman yeah, and right, Mark Miller are separate absolutely. issues. Those guys know how to move yeah, product yeah. in like nine figure numbers, but yeah. that's there's not that many. <laughs> yeah. of these. I mean, uh, well, yeah, no, but you're right, and it is interesting. And also, you know, I just had him on a, a couple weeks ago. Bendis, um, he's the other one. You know, his his deal with DC is really interesting. And, I mean, he really went into detail about how, like, Dan DiDio wants him to do Jinx World books. Of course he wants him to do 
mainline DC Universe books as well. But, I mean, verbatim from Bendis' mouth, he's like, DiDio's telling me, hey, I really think you kind of have been neglecting your creator-owned comics. What can I do to facilitate you making these books? And, you know, Brian is like, well, I guess I just got twice as busy because I'm not going to have this opportunity handed to me again. And that's why it's it's an interesting time. Um, and certainly I know you're going to be watching as well. I mean, that's this is the benefit of having this podcast is seeing these companies, you know, experiment. And I mean, ultimately, the the other thing that kind of drives me crazy from an editorial standpoint is that some readers are like, just make good comics. I don't need you to make comics for other people. And it's like, well, yeah, they're doing that. And maybe it's a good idea to get more people in. Tom King just said uh, cradle to the grave is how he described uh, DC's uh, ambitions with creating these other YA platforms and everything. And it's like, yeah, let's get some more new readers. And certainly the Walmart deal is part of that as well. I don't like to contemplate where I am on that uh, on that continuum. But more power to him. And, I, and, and you know, I, I, I hope it works out. And at the very least, it's putting some money in creators' pockets. And that's, that's an unvarnished good thing whenever it happens. So um, wherever, yeah. the, wherever these new publishers or existing publishers are getting their their dollars from i hope they keep coming i agree man um any 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 other uh, thoughts as uh, you know we're wrapping up i think we're at a good point where we can uh, put a button on it there, yeah but, uh, yeah for the no. two listeners who are still with us here uh... no 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 rob i'm telling you and and you know my my listeners they they trust me in terms of where i want to take these conversations and truly this week in particular is all about the uh not obvious nook and cranny kind of things that are happening at Comic-Con, and that's why I wanted to talk to you, because I knew you were one of those people that, uh, along with your own interests of what you're looking for and stuff, was going to be on some of these panels. And truly, um, I, I know it's a segmented audience, but I think that I think it's uh, that's what makes San Diego great, oh, that they I... do still cater to the small voices and, and this level of comic interest, along with the Hall H stuff. Well, absolutely. Well, I'm going to miss you there, uh, John. But um, if Thanks, any buddy. of your if any of your listeners are out there, uh, once again, the press panel Thursday at 10:30, the museum panel Thursday at four, the alt anthology Saturday at 4:30, and Jason Lutz uh, Sunday at noon. Um, and if you happen to see me around the floor um, and want to chat, uh, I'm Happy to happy to meet people and, and, and talk about all this stuff. As you can tell, I love talking about it. Attaboy. Well, and also uh, from an uh, online standpoint, uh, your weekly columns at Forbes, also ICV2. Correct. And um, you do, yeah, you know, I, go on. yeah, I tweet out about all the, all, the, all the stuff that I'm doing at Rob Salk, R-O-B-S-A-L-K, on Twitter. That's the, that's the main, uh, main place to look for me. Um, and, yeah, I've got a bunch of – bunch of stuff i've got a big piece in publishers weekly coming in august so uh oh cool yeah, it'll be it'll be fun stuff excellent man now keep up the good work man i'm glad that we have someone like yourself that's uh covering uh the geek media from from this point of view and i and i think uh, you always provide good information and great coverage and i i'm glad you're always willing to come back and have a new chat with me so i uh, look forward to the next one likewise i'm sure take it easy bud that's our buddy Rob Salkowitz. I hope you enjoyed it. Before we go, I was just recently on uh, some Chicago radio. I wasn't able to go to San Diego Comic-Con, but uh, here's a panel of sorts that I did on live Chicago radio just this past Wednesday. 
I went back to my old stomping grounds of the sports radio station in Chicago, The Score. I spent nine years there uh, as a producer and then as a reporter and production director of the place. A couple of the best years of my time there at The Score were spent working directly with two of my good friends who are wonderful sports journalists, Dan McNeil and Terry Bores. Dan McNeil came from Indiana, did a lot of Chicago radio before the forming of The Score, and Dan was one of the original first hosts, as was Terry Bores. Terry Bores' background, he came from the Chicago Sun-Times. He also worked for Detroit newspapers before he came to Chicago, but he is a guy who uh, was raised here in Chicago. Great journalist, uh, over 30 years of uh, newspaper journalism, came on the radio, did 25 years of radio, just retired at the beginning of last year, and uh, came back for a reunion show with Dan, and they asked me to be a guest, so I spent about 12 minutes with them. That's what I'm going to present to you right now. But a little context before we get started. Um, First, I uh, spent uh, about uh, half a year on uh, the morning show on The Score, working with uh, Chicago Bull Norm Van Leer and Chicago Bear Doug Buffone. Great guys, very, very funny. Neither of them were very good at uh, as far as leading a radio show, and they asked me to come on and, and you know just do comedy bits and and be there with them as a as a second banana. And uh, as I say, nobody was driving the car, nobody was driving the show, and uh, things didn't work out. Never against those guys, they were terrific. But management and I disagreed with the direction of the show, so I left. And uh, we have a story about that. And uh, just to give you again context, when we start talking about them in the middle of the conversation, also. Uh, we start things off with a great soundbite from Bears coach Mike Ditka. Uh, we were doing the Mike Ditka weekly uh, Chicago Bears show, and it starts off with Terry asking a question of Ditka, and Ditka basically said, hey, who are you trying to bullshit here? And he used the phrase, who you crapping? Well, who you crapping became this huge score bit weekly that started with McNeil and Boers, continued after uh, they were uh, separated for no bad reasons, but just to spread the brand around. And then Terry had a new host, co-host, Dan Bernstein. They continued Who You Crappin' well up until Terry's retirement in 2017. So a great feature on the score, and callers would call in and, you know, just point out uh, sports people who were lying. And that's kind of the point of of this initial soundbite that ushers in our conversation. So uh, Dan McNeil, Terry Bores, and yours truly, uh, recently on WSCR Radio on Wednesday. I hope you enjoy this portion of Word Balloon. One of the things, Mike, that's been pointed out over the course of today and last night after the game, that there wasn't much fire in you, and you sort of stood up before the media and said, well, you know, this is the way it is. We Are you resigned to this fate? Is well, you're, you're the same guy that wrote about me when I did have the fire, that that was the wrong thing to do. So who are you crapping? Well, I'm just don't asking. Don't crap me. No, 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 no. No, no. Nah, nah, don't crap me. Fall of there 1992. I was fist yep. pumping, driving down the Kennedy. We got a segment. <laughs> We like I said say, yesterday, it, it wasn't stunning to me because that's how he always treated me. So I didn't even catch it right away. That he, you know, I mean, I, I, I had him more than half tuned out, if that's possible. I really wasn't listening to anything he said. So I didn't catch it. You caught it. That's what people always say. You caught it more than I did. To me, it was just another day at the office. Like, Dope. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's just, 
Okay. Gang, we suck, gang. <laughs> Chewing his gum. We suck, gang. Uh, this is Not John good. Suntris, Shaky Suntris, who used to produce our show. Hey, and, uh, everybody. Uh, boy, uh, oh, boy. Part of the ill-fated morning show with uh, the late Norm Van Leer and the late Doug Buffon I'll as tell you well. what. <laughs> Norm, uh, he's coming back every uh, Sunday into Monday on the Red Eye from L.A., so a lot of times he'd miss the game. And, you know, it's a Bears Monday. So literally, that's all we're talking about for four hours. He's like, so what happened with the game yesterday, baby? And we're like, Nora, you realize we're, we're going to be talking about it for the next four hours. Don't worry, baby. I'm going to fake it. And we're like, oh. Chooch, don't worry about it. Think, Chooch. It's all going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. That's right. Doug used to call you Chooch. I was whacked out on Xanax every day. I'm telling you. I was like Janine Garofalo on Saturday Night Live. I'm like, get me the hell out of here. Good Lord. Who's driving? Nobody's driving. That's why it's a fun show. <laughs> yes. There's Ron Gleason in a nutshell. There's uh, Gilligan. When the inmates ran the asylum, the golden age of the score. It's the total truth. I know. I, was, I, don't, uh, I don't dispute that. <laughs> did I you know guys, that. Did you guys talk about the, uh, first of all, George. George would do his news updates in this tiny little booth that literally yeah. was maybe the size of a phone booth and a half. And in between reports, I would uh, cut up the... Uh, you know, the openings and stuff and take highlights. Well, we'd be yelling back and forth and then the monsters would be late to the update. So that would cut into my production. Monsters were late. Exactly. What are the odds? Exactly. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, so everyone's screaming. And at one point it's me, George and Jiggets and Harvey Wells, our station manager's like, Hey, you want to keep it down? People are trying to work here. And Jiggets went nuts. He's like, well, we're all stuck in here. Like it's one phone booth and you got five guys. He's like, we're rats in a cage, Harvey. We're rats in a cage. (laughs) So for like the next five hours we're all every time we see Harvey we're rats in a cage Harvey that's awesome Harvey was great at getting that refrigerator cleaned out by three o'clock on Friday (laughs) afternoon though man I never saw an executive with more skills than that When he put get this stuff out of here by 3 o'clock on Friday, he meant it. He'd he'd toss it. As I said yesterday, too, he's the only one that would read Murph's notes. Hey, I got something Listen, I got like two legal pads full of notes. I just wanted to get this. First of all, nobody's listening to me (laughs) as far as the staff goes. I love Murph. I know. I I read your chapter. Good Lord. Wow, man. (laughs) You were saving it up, weren't you? He he teed him up yesterday for a good 15 minutes as well. I know. I got to listen to the highlights, man. (laughs) I missed Judd yesterday. I'm so bummed. I miss Judd. We had had fun. I think I, I did your guys' show for like two years. And then afterwards, I shifted to production. But it was so much fun. We'd laugh every day. Truly. And honestly, like, I think one day Dan got mad. He's like, don't excuse me. <laughs> I did. I did. That's what he I should the get volatile that. I, I should get that T-shirt. Don't excuse me. <laughs> one time. You I, did have an excuse uh, for something, though. One day, uh, Dan got Ron mad. And he wanted him out of there, and he was going to take over co-hosting with Terry. And he points at Dan, and he goes like, he's like, you want to take over? And he goes, yeah. He goes, fine. Hope you read the papers. And he throws up his mouth. <laughs> and we feel bad for Dan, but we can't help it. We're all laughing, man. We were crying. Well, the goose was a chotch, wasn't he? I, I, I mean, I honestly, like Ron a lot on a personal level. I think yeah. he's a wonderful guy, but uh, he was in over his head. Not, well, again, the inmates ran the asylum. That's right. He didn't have a very strong... 
strong will. You know, I Coach. started I started working at BBM. I've been working there for about 15 months now doing tra- overnight traffic. And Because it's so glamorous. It's fun. <laughs> oh, you know, it's great. BBM really is like the score elephant graveyard because I'm there. George is there. Kerner is there. Save me a desk. Bartosh is there. It's so funny. And we are. It's like, oh, how are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Chief Lousy Shirt. George shows up every day kind of, you know, maintaining the record of having the most interesting prints on Oxford shirts you've ever seen. <laughs> That's why we, he came in with this weird Native American print that looked like it was probably like 12 years old from a Sears catalog. And I started calling him Chief Lousy Shirt after that. <laughs> I don't think you can do that anymore, can you? Humpty Grumpty. <laughs> I said Native Humpty, American. Humpty Grumpty. It, it occurred to me yesterday Man. as I was thinking about, oh, you yeah. know, you coming on today that I once dubbed you Humpty Grumpty. That's true. Yeah, you, and a you, idiot. You were, you were in a bad mood a lot of the time. <laughs> you know, my neutral face is a scowl. You, I don't, you, do, I don't have, you do have bitch face. I do have bitch face. Resting it's bitch face. It's true. But yeah, Dan would be like, you know, I talk about some rerun I saw. Get smart the other night. Oh, my God, Dick. And he's like, you know, Shaky, you're a vidiot. You know that? <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'm cool with that. God, uh, by the way, The Rock, a lot of charisma, man. You got to admit it. He's yeah. a likable yeah. guy. He's doing. He, he plays the game well. I, I, what he's I, doing. I don't get the impression his waters run real deep, no. but he plays the part well. Does. Honestly, a really good uh, dramatic movie he made called Snitch. With Barry really Pepper, good. yep, I saw and, it. Yep. Yeah, I like I mean, Barry it's got, Pepper. It's Sherry got a, likes Barry. He Pepper. goes undercover I'd to like Napa, a drug dealer. And it's a it's a really good. I swear to God, it's a. I, and he's I was, not even rockish. No, that's, that's what I mean. It was it's le- not, legitimately not the Rock doing a dramatic role. Because he kept waiting for the pick up the semi and throw it, <laughs> but but he, he doesn't. Never raised the eyebrow. It, 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 I also no. like uh, the poor man's in laws that he did with uh, Kevin Hart. Central Intelligence, I want to say. Central Intelligence, right? yeah. And that was kind of funny. It was clearly like a, an in-laws kind of, you know, shell, serpentine shell. Kevin Hart's you know. due, isn't he? He hasn't made a movie in a month or two, right? Yeah. Well, didn't he have – well, I know he had like uh, adultery issues and maybe that kind of yeah, sub- submarine, yeah. you know, the career for he'll like five back. seconds. Yeah, oh, he'll be back. He'll no, be he's, back. He's, he's funny. He's good. I like him. <laughs> That's segment, a good movie. This uh, <laughs> visit with Shaky Suntress is brought to you by Orkin. Every home is unique. <laughs> Appropriate. That That's Orkin why is, Orkin relies. Controlled. We used to go through this every day with this guy. (laughs) (laughs) That's why Orkin relies on the latest science to get rid of pests, because pests hate science. Visit Orkin.com today. Orkin, pest control down to a science. I met for the second, I guess you only meet someone once technically, but for the second time in my life, just a few years ago, I spent about 30 minutes with Mike Tyson. Yes. And (laughs) kindred spirits. Despite... Yeah, and I think that's why we got along so well, on and off the air. Uh, I t- he's talking about he's talking about his time in the joint in Indiana, and I told him I live in Northwest Indiana. Is that anywhere near Hammond? And I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, I was born in Hammond. I grew up in a neighboring town, Highland. Those M from Hammond are crazy. <laughs> Do me a favor, say that on the backside, but lose the f bomb. And he did. But he's a. I know this sounds bad, but he's a wonderful guy. He's well, fun to be around. I was shocked how much I enjoyed his company. Life hit him hard, man. I mean, you know, and not to get sad, but truly, obviously, losing a kid obviously probably messed him up. And I think uh, uh, with age comes perspective, and I think he is grateful given where his career went and went from being one of the most loved guys coming up to one of the most hated guys even before the ear biting with Holyfield. 
And, you know, now I think wanted again. Wanted to eat him. Wanted to eat his children. You do yeah. it better than I do. Yes, Give me some true. mic. Listen, I, my, my one-man play has, has really taken off. <laughs> and I'm, I'm considering doing other one-man plays. I'm going to do an evening with Mark Twain. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really going to be successful. My days on the Miss- Mississippi River as a steamboat captain. <laughs> Who doesn't want to hear me talk? The day that Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer, and I were whitewashing a fence. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you know, a musical, Don King and I, I think will be a very good one. I'm looking forward to that. Not Mike, you still got your pet lion. No, the zoning uh, people in Vegas made me get rid of the lion. Uh, it was sad because, you know, I'd take him over to Siegfried and Roy's and we'd frolic. And it was, it was, it was, it was very born free. <laughs> so, uh, he it, does it's these a shame. impersonations. I, I swear, you would think it was the real people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, for most of his life, he never spoke a word that meant anything. And then at the end, he, he started actually become more of a person after Buffet Douglas yeah. got him. Because, I mean, he, you know, oh, my God. I, I, but I, I love to cover his fights. Oh, God, yes. Nothing, yeah, uh, man. And me too. That's why you are the boxing juice. That's I mean, exactly I love right. To cover his fights. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. Uh, I, I was at the Tyson-Bruno rematch at uh, the MGM Grand, and that was great. And I was at the press conference for the rematch with Razor Ruddick. And I, I asked him, I'm like, you know, hey, everybody really wants to see you fight Buster Douglas again. He's like, Buster Douglas is a dog. He doesn't deserve to fight me again. And the guy from, uh, from Showtime, the, the CEO, is like, well, you know, Mike, uh, we ran a survey. And uh, actually, people really do want to see you rematch Buster. And Don King, well, you know, if, uh, if he's going to come, he better, he better be ready to take a lot less money. You know. So Don, it is such a weird, different boxing world today because Don King well you know they're all in their 80s now I mean Bob Arum is still a force and God he's been showing great fights on ESPN but uh, it's weird it's just like no one cares about boxing (laughs) that's true you're right the MMA oh no you're absolutely right this generation is right no you're right and it's a shame because honestly the competition has really gotten great they finally realize uh, don't hold for 12 rounds maybe actually fight each other and you got that facility moment Chico and What's that? Throw some punches. <laughs> yes, for God's sake. And listen, by the way, Deontay Wilder, you, but you talk a good game for fighting nothing but somnambulists and, and mummies because I've yet to see you actually. You fought one Cuban that used to back up Desi Arnaz back in the I Love Lucy days that actually knew how to fight me. Hey, slap you silly. You, were, you, you didn't know where the hell you were. And, and yet you're going to beat me? My reputation can take you right now. <laughs> Our conversation with Not Mike Tyson brought to you by Aaron Hills Golf Course in Southeast Wisconsin championship golf on a landscape shaped by glaciers for a different experience. Make Aaron Hills your next golf destination. Play, stay, eat, and meet at the site of the 2017 U.S. Open Business or Pleasure. AaronHills.com. E R I N Hills.com. Shaky, it's great to see you. Thanks for stopping. Oh, always by. A Give it up for Thank our guys, the man. I miss you both. Love you. Love you. Yep. Dan Love Patrick you. joins us in an hour from oh, Hoiberg at 4 o'clock. And Whoop. Dave Wanstead here at 5. It's McNeil and Boris on Sports Radio 670 The Score. There you go. Much like my boxing interviews, I keep kicking around the idea of uh, talking to some of my friends in Chicago sports radio history because I really felt like uh, something really special happened starting in the 90s with Chicago sports radio right behind WFAN. We went on the air. That's uh, the New York station. Uh, there was also, uh, I think, uh, St. Saint- Paul, Minneapolis also started a sports station around the same time we did. And uh, we were one of the first Chicago or the first uh, sports stations 
in the country to do 24 hours of sports talk. Uh, we were certainly the first Chicago station to do it. And uh, there's just a lot of my friends that I think really helped shape what sports radio has become. So in the future here on Word Balloon, you might hear Dan McNeil and Terry Bores one-on-one with me, some of my other friends in uh, sports broadcasting, to talk about uh, you know what they did. And uh, my small role, I'm, I'm kind of, I always like to say, I was a reporter and a weekend host and certainly a producer, um, uh, kind of a spear carrier, if you will, if you put it in theater terms. Uh, they were the Olivier's. They were the guys on the front stage. I was, I was one of the supporting guys, but I was there. And uh, it, again, I, I kind of think uh, a lot of magic happened as far as uh, radio goes in those broadcast years. So I hope you enjoyed that little piece. As we wrap up today's Word Balloon, thank you very much, League of Word Balloon listeners, for your continued support uh, of this show. And uh, we've got one more Word Balloon unconventional coming your way at the uh, end of the weekend. Uh, and after, uh, this would re- reflect the after-hours conversation that goes on at conventions. And uh, it's a fun talk with our good friend Sal Abinati. Uh, he uh, he reps uh, wonderful artists like Bill Sienkiewicz and Alex Ross, and he is manning the Alex Ross booth at Comic-Con this weekend. Uh, you should go over there because it's beautiful, and it's a gallery presentation of wonderful Alex Ross art. Bill Sienkiewicz has a similar, similar gallery presentation of his art as well. Uh, it's gorgeous, and I highly recommend you checking them out because uh, they're both there. You know, uh, Well, Alex isn't there, but Bill is there at his booth. Uh, willing to uh, autograph and shake your hand and, and meet you and talk about his work with you. Um, Sal and uh, Justin and our uh, our buddies, uh, Chris as well, uh, run the booth for Alex Ross Art. It's always an amazing presentation as well. Alex and Chip are there, excuse me, at the convention. They are pr- promoting uh, the new Marvel book that they're going to be putting together. And uh, that's among the things that we discussed in our conversation with Sal. Uh, it's coming out later this year. But it's going to be a beautiful presentation of all of Alex's Ross, uh, Alex of Alex's art at Marvel, and uh, Chip is doing the uh, the words of the book. Pretty neat stuff. So I uh, look forward to uh, that conversation coming up before the weekend's over, right here on Word Balloon. Thanks for listening today. Look forward to talking to you with another Word Balloon Unconventional to wrap up the week. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2018. <laughs>